another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, one of the one of the greatest of all time, one of the most important vocalists ever in punk for for my money, like just a, a true inspiration from the band Seven Seconds. Kevin Seconds is here on the show today. And trust me, this is a good one. Get ready. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and you will get the message to me. Tristan also runs a Turned Out of Punk Facebook page and a Turned Out of Punk Instagram page. Both of those can be found uh, turned out a punk on their respective platforms. If you're looking for me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling your friends about it, letting everyone know that, you know, that this podcast exists. You can also support it by subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of choice. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone that does do that. I really do appreciate it. You can also support this thing by heading over to patreoncom slash turned out a punk and checking out some of the stuff that we do over on that thing over there. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, we love what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket. And they helped me cover the cost of this thing, and it is unbelievably greatly appreciated. So thank you very much to Vans for doing that. And if you're looking for something to check out music-wise... The band that I play in Fucked Up has put out a long song, a very long song, and you can check it out on Fucked Up's Bandcamp. It's called Year of the Horse. Very proud of it. Don't worry, I'm just one of many vocalists on this thing. You don't have to listen to me for an hour and a half. Well, you're about to listen to me for longer than that, but, you know, screaming, screaming. Uh, but check that thing out. I'm, I'm really proud of it. It's coming out on vinyl and I got probably CD too. I think there's a five-inch vinyl coming out of it too, weirdly. And it's all coming out on Scotty Karate's Tank Crimes Records. Scotty's Scotty's my buddy. My bud. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, the legend, the god, Kevin Seconds from the band Seven Seconds is here. If you are not familiar with uh, Seven Seconds, you got a lot of homework to do. This is a band that has influenced t- countless generations of hardcore bands and in different ways every time too they have put out uh, a huge catalog and it, it changed and it evolved and with that change and evolution they spawned other bands to change and evolve as well anyway we get into some of that in this episode but they are incredibly important and kevin is someone who growing up i just heard from older people like the generation of punks before me that he was that dude, like he was, he wasn't just singing these songs. He was living this. He was really, you know, trying to embody these principles in the way he lived his life. I got to meet Kevin years ago, but way after hearing about all these stories and he lived up to all those expectations and the brief exchange that we had. And then fast forward to here where he's on the show again. And once again, he just, uh, I don't know. I just was, I had a smile from ear to ear for a few days after recording this because I don't know, it just shows you that uh, this isn't just a trend for people. This can be a way of life and it can be something larger than a sonic. It can be something larger than 
I don't know, a scene. It's just something you carry with you. And I think Kevin is someone who, you know, definitely carries it with him. Uh, the incredible uh, debut LP by Seven Seconds. They had some seven inches before this, but the LP that is just, you know, this record should be in everyone's collection. The crew has finally been reissued in the deluxe treatment that it deserves by the fine folks at Trust Records Company. It's got a giant booklet. It's, you know, the, the, the usual stuff and then some it's also got a bonus session in there as well you got to pick this thing up if you do not own this record it, it should be in your collection this is one of those ones that i still i still pull this thing out and i still listen to it it still inspires me all these years later and i picked this up as one of the first records i got when i got into punk rock uh okay i'm not going to yammer on because believe me we yammer for a lot um you know and what you're about to hear uh before i do uh let you go and listen to this episode I got to say that this thing is dedicated to Ginger Mowat. Ginger Mowat passed away from cancer um, about a month ago. She was a huge Seven Seconds fan, a huge part of the Seven Seconds family, and also the wife of Troy Mowat, the drummer of Seven Seconds. There is a GoFundMe. If you look up Ginger Mowat on Google, it'll be one of the first things that pops up is this GoFundMe. Um I, I, I could read this whole thing, but it's in loving memory of Ginger Mowat. Also, if you Google that, I'm sure it'll also pop up as well. Uh, contribute some money if you can to help cover some of the funeral expenses. And yeah, my deepest condolences and love to Troy and the Seven Seconds family um, uh, on the loss. I'm so sorry. All right. Um, sit back, relax, and enjoy Kevin Seconds on Turned Out of Punk. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, I'm happy to be here. I love the podcast, and I'm stoked to get the, a chance to be on the, on the show with you. Well, thank I you. I really appreciate that, and I felt like I was kind of rushing you on air here a second ago, but it's because there are so many things that I want to <laughs> talk to you about because uh, I did tell you this. This is a huge deal for me. Um, you know, we met briefly years ago at South by Southwest, and mm -hmm. I kind of express to you like many other people how important you and your band are to me and uh but i've never really had a chance to hit you with all these questions that i've been <laughs> ruminating on for years well you weren't you weren't we, we, you weren't a big podcast guy back then were you we had you had were you do, had you done the started doing the podcast back when no no they, together i figured no, yeah they weren't recorded at that point they were more just like I'm going to corner someone backstage and just pepper them with questions <laughs> as long as they can take it. And right. it, because it was like, kind of like, you know, it was like a festival setting and it, there wasn't yep. much of a backstage. So there was no appropriate setting for me to really hit you with all this verbal diarrhea that I'm about to hit you with. Okay. Well, I'm ready, man. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not afraid. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's start this off the way they all start off, which is Kevin, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, honestly, uh, growing up in Reno, Nevada, being kind of a rock and roll, hard, hard rock, heavy metal kid. Um, I loved all that music and I loved the, you know, I loved reading cream magazine and Rolling Stone and daydreaming, laying on my bed, daydreaming that one day that would be me. But there was always a sense that, uh, 
I, I, it was just too unattainable, you know, like the idea you go to a stadium and see a band and, you know, you'd go, wow, that was a, the most amazing thing ever. And then you'd get home and go, that really kind of sucked. You know, it was yeah. like, it was, the sound was terrible and people were blowing pot smoke in my face and you couldn't see the band. And so um, I think I was just sort of like, I craved something. I was looking for something that I, I didn't really, I didn't fit in anywhere in high school. I didn't have a, 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 a tribe more or less, you know, and I, I just sort of, uh, I, I, I sort of wanted to, you know, I, I didn't want to be an, an odd bird. I didn't want to be like a sort of somebody that's, you know, sat on the sidelines and thought, oh, I wish I could be a part of that. So, uh, yeah, I, we were, um, my family lived in Reno. We were doing pretty poorly. We were living out of a motel room and I'll, I'll spare all the details on that, but it was just, um, we didn't really have a lot going on. I had just gotten a job at, at a McDonald's. I think I was 16 and we were sitting around watching our, our little black and white TV. And there was a thing, this would have been sometime in 77. There was a, th- a, a expose on, um, on the English, the British invasion of punk rock. Mm-hmm. which I had, I had no idea what that meant or anything. And then they showed uh, footage of the sex pistols playing on stage and kids were in the crowd choking each other with safety pins in their cheeks. <laughs> and they were th- spitting at Johnny Rotten and they were spitting back and they had the lyrics sort of superimposed, you know, like down at the, at the bottom and it was God save the queen. She ain't no human being. And, and I, 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 I felt like I was like watching something like just watching some movie about, space like martians you know what i mean like yeah. i was like what the fuck is this and um and i i just i was i was obsessed after that i couldn't get enough of, i mean i just i was like i want to know more about this like the music sounded good i loved the fact that the kids were like right up against the stage where the band was like two feet away from them and it just i i it resonated with me i just thought now whatever this is i think i kind of i want to get i want to investigate so i spent months trying to you know i mean it was all it was all rolling stone and cream magazine and that's the only the the, the few times they talk about that that stuff but gradually i started to find out about um some people in new york who who sold you could you could do a mail order thing where they were they were selling music it turned out it was like bootleg cassettes but it was like bootleg um live sex pistols at the you know 100 uh, marquee or the 100 club or yeah the damn the clash you know everybody and so i was just like i whatever money i was making you know from my little shitty mcdonald's i think i was making two 285 an hour or something like that i just um i give my mom a little money to help help out with with things and then i the rest of it went into music and that was what i, I was buying these like shitty recorded cassettes of the the pistols like in clubs and the jam and the damned and the clash and everything and i just uh, it, i i couldn't get enough i just felt like I, I i related even though this was all coming out of england and and then shortly thereafter i'd heard the ramones uh, and i was like okay <laughs> i think i'm i think i'm done i think this is it i think i'm i think i'm, I'm hooked you know and steve my my little brother who was seven second space player you know he just kind of tagged along he was he was right there with me and he you know, he was kind of just like a little rebel kid too. So he, he didn't, you know, we, none of, we didn't like school. Neither, neither one of us were like, really, we didn't have any sort of idea what we wanted to be when we grew up, you know? So I think it was just perfect timing or the worst timing, depending on how you look <laughs> at it, you know? But um, yeah, that was the start of that. That would have been like in 77, you know? And then um, I think I got my first, I think later that year I bought uh I'd already I'd already been a fan of like New York Dolls and and some Iggy Pop stuff, but I didn't that stuff kind of wasn't called punk rock. You know, there was no real connection to that being punk rock at the time. 
But uh, and then I remember buying um, I found that uh, X-ray spec seven inch Obani up yours. And I was like, you know, it was that just blew my mind. You know, it was a woman singer out of tune fucking saxophone, you know, just <laughs> yeah. just just right in your face. It, it was incredible, you know, and, and, and that just uh, that really sparked the idea of, between me and my brother, especially of wanting to start a band because it, it sounded like music we could play, you know, and that like being a kid that grew up with Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, you know, that stuff I love. I still love it, but I, I just didn't feel like I really could ever be that good. And it, it was out of my hands. But punk rock, I was like, it's a little more manageable. I think I can do this. <laughs> so, yeah, that was kind of the start. So, you know, 78, we we by the middle of summer 78, we start we tried to make, start bands. We were trying to find drummers in Reno and it was all like, you know, rock you know top 40 jazz and you know nobody even knew what we, we said we put an ad out saying punk rock you know looking for punk rock musicians and just crickets nobody you know nobody knew what the hell we were even talking about so it took us a while but we finally found somebody where were you kind of getting into the hard rock stuff from was it like were you hearing it on the radio was there like a radio station that was playing this stuff that kind of led you to cream or uh no i mean I, I my mom you know my mom was amazing she 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 was kind of a you know she was she was a a, 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 a you know a hippie in the 60s you know went to berkeley um was very you know liberal very involved so you know social uh active activist you know she 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 was pretty hip you know and she loved everything from i mean growing up she was always playing she always she always went out and bought singles so she was always buying whatever was top 40 you know so i remember hearing you know uh fifth dimension or the stones or the beatles or whatever yeah. and then she also had an amazing collection she had jazz you know she had a crazy jazz stuff you know motown um she loved you know ima sumac you know like i don't know how many octave range singer for, you know <laughs> like just crazy shit you know yeah. like and 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 she also loved you know uh jimi hendrix and the doors and and um bands like that so i would just listen to her stuff and you know i always i i wanted like all my friends rebelled against their parents they hated their parents because they listened to like old people music but my mom listened to cooler music than i did so i i couldn't <laughs> you know like i couldn't yeah. really rebel so yeah i got I, she kind of turned me on to it and then um just the um just as far as like the heavy the heavier like deep purple and bands like that i, I think it was just you know knowing a couple kids at school that would i remember the i think the first real hard rock band i got into was grand funk railroad i remember they were just like uh, my fr a friend of mine was like check these guys out you know and i remember just sit, sitting around in his room he 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 had just started to smoke pot and he was trying to get me to smoke pot and i i, I didn't really want to because i thought i was going to get addicted and i was gonna you know so i i would i would put it off as long as i could but i wanted to go over to his house because he had great records you know <laughs> and so i would go through this whole thing for weeks of just like yeah nah, i don't feel very good you know no i i got a headache you know finally i gave in i was like all right i'll try it you know and it didn't really do much for me, so it was it wasn't a big deal. But yeah, I just uh, he had he had a, he had a, he was the first person that turned me on to black Black Sabbath, and uh, you know like just a lot of the hard rock stuff from the seventies. Um, you know, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath. I don't know. I, I'm trying to. I'm I'm having. I'm blanking out right now. But anybody you can think of from the seventies, pretty much. Well, like where were you hearing like that New York Dolls and the Stooges stuff? Because even at that point, that stuff was like really hard to come by in terms of physical copies, right? It's out of print. Yeah, that was uh, the New York Dolls I saw on um, – there was a show in, in America called uh, Midnight uh, – I'm sorry. Um, 
Oh, Midnight Special. Midnight Special. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> also another one called Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Absolutely. On Friday nights. And I, I live for that. I, I mean, it was like any pretty much anybody, unless it was like the Eagles or, you know, when disco <laughs> first started, that was kind of a bummer. But yeah, they, they were playing. They would do they'd have this dolls come on and play. Um, I think I got into the dolls. Actually, a, a friend of ours that lived in this apartment complex uh, we lived in turned me on to the mc5 and i i thought this was crazy stuff you know because i knew it yeah. was like uh, you know just just crazy political like right you know left wing just crazy stuff but i didn't know enough about politics i didn't get it really i i liked the music but i was like yeah i was you know but the dolls were cool because i i loved alice cooper um eventually when kiss came along i loved kiss i loved the theatrical thing and the dolls were great because they just had this you know, they just had the they were in makeup and mascara. And I thought, man, that's really ballsy. You know, like I can't imagine doing that. And I remember I, I bought a New York Dolls album, the first New York Dolls album. And I remember I, I had a friend that, you know, totally was just offended. He just was so convinced that I was gay and that I, you know, like he just didn't understand how I could love that music. And I was like, listen, to these songs, they're great. You know, yeah. and that that was that that was kind of uh, that was. That was definitely pre-punk, you know, it was like before everything was kind of being called punk rock or whatever. But um, yeah, I think the MC5 and and uh, Iggy was I, I didn't really get into Iggy until a little later. Like I like I think I actually started getting more into um, like I got on the pistols and I remember hearing no fun. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's an Iggy Iggy and the Stooges song or whatever. But uh, MC5, I love New York Dolls. Um, you know, I still I still love those those bands. Um Alice Cooper was huge. I know he's not punk rock, but Alice Cooper was such a big. I was really obsessed with that band. I, you know, there was a couple of. There was a book out called Billion Dollar Billion Dollar Baby that a guy from Chicago, a writer from Chicago, went on the road with the Alice Cooper, the original Alice Cooper band, and and uh, just wrote about the tour. And it just, I, 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 I probably read that book ten. 12 times I, I just I, it was because it was real detailed about what it was like to be in a band on tour you know and yeah so well it's it, it also alice cooper like you know obviously not certainly not capital p punk rock but like it does have that kind of aggression it's that detroit rock and roll i guess by way of yeah. phoenix but it's it's awesome like I, i'm a big fan too but you know and i wanted to ask you actually about kiss and and certainly with alice cooper and the new york dolls like you know makeup is obviously such a huge component of face makeup and i would say that your makeup that you would wear early on or like the 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 black on your eyes <laughs> yeah. is, is that's that's as iconic in hardcore as the kiss makeup is in a weird way you know where was that influence coming is that in any way connected to that influence no not at all i mean okay. I, honest to god I, you know i see photos of it now and i'm just like wow what was the hell for me it was like once we once seven seconds started um we had, we really are once we got an inkling about what like a, a punk rock scene even meant you know like mm. just to be a part of a punk rock scene nowadays i'm not so much nowadays but you know in the 80s and 90s everybody was like oh yeah we got a really cool scene you guys should come play well in in 78 79 nobody was talking about that there 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 were like you knew that i'd started hearing about bands like doa and and black flag and the dead kennedys touring um, but other than that, you know, underground bands really weren't touring or if they did, you didn't hear about it, you know. So um, but 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 there was I, I remember talking to Joey Shetta. They came through Reno and and 
he just uh oh actually i called him i got his number this is really embarrassing i got his somehow i got his phone number and i called him i think this was late 79 and i and i i'd read an interview with him and so i don't remember what the the zine was but i just got his number and i called him and i just said hey man you know i i uh, you know i just uh I just asked him a million questions, you know, like I'm in this, I'm trying to start a band, you know, do you have any advice? And, you know, he was just the most gracious, wonderful, you know, he just, he, 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 he found time to talk. You know, it was just like some nerdy kid bug, probably bugging the crap out of him, but he, he was just so nice. And, 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 and it really, it really affected me like that. He was so down to earth. Same with all of the black flag guys, you know, um, Chuck Dukowski was always, you could call him anytime and, you know, you'd ask him, you have any numbers for somebody in Phoenix or Vegas? And he he was just like, yeah, man, yeah. They were just really super, super down to earth and approachable and helpful, you know. And yep. uh, when we asked him to come in Reno, when we finally had, you know, felt, hey, we got a nice little scene here. Let's try to get some bands to come up. You know, DOA were the first band that said, yep, sure. You know, what can you pay us? And we're like, uh, can we pay you a hundred bucks? Okay, we'll be there. You know what I mean? It was like, it was just like no contracts, no nothing. It was like, yeah, we're heading down to San Francisco. We, we got a Wednesday open. We'll come and play Reno, you know? And um, so that was huge for, for a bunch of kids that were kind of like, you know, living in this real super conservative, um, just boring hellhole, you know, like no, no culture. It was all about just gambling and, and drinking and, and which, you know, is fine if you're into that, but when you're like, you know, 19, 18, you know, it's just like, it's kind of a bummer, you know, that's, that's like that. Yeah. That's, this is what we have to look forward to Jesus, you know? Well, and it's been a bummer for kids for generations all over the world. And that's why these songs, you know, still resonate. Like these songs that you wrote as a teenager, still have impact with kids like all over the world and there's there's so much stuff from that time period that would have come out that just feels so dated compared to these things that you're writing as as like a kid you know like mm-hmm. a, a lot of the contemporary pop music that would have come out around then right. feels like ancient compared to the stuff that you're doing and i guess it's just because wow. it's so it's so real well I, that thank you i hope so you know i i i, I can't i don't know i can't tell i you know like a people will say these really amazing things about the band and I, I'm still floored by it. You know, I, I still feel like it, um, not surprised. And I, I don't feel like we, we don't deserve accolades. I just, uh, I, you know, we, it, for us, I think it was just preservation. We, we needed to do this. We needed to, to get out and, and, and say the things we were saying. And I, I, I wanted to, I, I didn't want to, uh, I, I, I guess I, you know, I, I wasn't a rule breaker so much as I just didn't want to follow the rules that that I I just didn't I thought they were so re, you know ridiculous and I I didn't really want to fit in anywhere unless I could find a place and just make that my place you know and and I I learned that early on but I didn't quite know what what beyond that you know what to do after that you know so mm-hmm. so it, it, it for me up until kind of getting into punk rock and i, I it, for me it was like well I'll, what i'll do is i'll work at mcdonald's maybe i'll become a manager i'll start making money maybe i'll get a better job and then but you know when i once i turn 18 hopefully my family is doing okay and i can just get the fuck out of here you know move back to california because that's where i grew up and i just thought well it, maybe it's just a wait it wait it out and get back to california and then i'll whatever i'm gonna do all i could do um, but with punk rock, it, it, it helped me survive, you know, it helped me, it gave me something to look forward to every day. You know, I, I'd go to these shitty jobs and I'd just have like, you know, Tommy gun from the clash ringing in my, my head or, or, you know, Judy is a punk or whatever. And it just, it helped me. It, I, it got me through the day and it got me through just a really dreary, shitty time, you know? And, um, I, I just, I couldn't really, that, 
helped me helped sort of help me figure things out for myself, you know. And once I realized I wanted to write songs instead of just cover songs, I I really didn't understand what that meant. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't, you know, I barely knew how to play guitar, but I just thought I'm going to write everything down and then if I ever get to the point where I figure out chords, I'm just going to try to make songs out of them. And that's that's really all it was, you know. Yeah. But um yeah, you know, I I'm I'm stoked that that, that it resonated with people all over the place. It really makes it it means a great deal great deal to me, you know almost now more than ever because I'm 60. I just turned 60, you know, and still there's so much love for the band and, and, and on a daily basis, people are checking in and, you know, kind of wondering, you know, hey, is there any chance of maybe one or two more shows at least? And I was like, <laughs> I never say never. <laughs> it's like, but you know, you fucked point, up when you wrote young till I die, you know, I, like- <laughs> trust me, brother. I, I, I get it. I'll, if I make any comment, like, Oh, you know, went to the gym today. I'm feel, Oh, my back hurts. Hey, I thought you were young till I, till you, <laughs> you know, it, it's just no matter what I do, it's going to be ringing, you know, it's the albatross. Yep. <laughs> uh, just uh, where would you think you would have gotten Joey's phone number? Like, would they have come through Reno prior to that? Or like, like, you know, you read the interview, obviously, would it have been in the bottom of the interview? I'm, I'm trying to think if it was in the copy of the seven inch, even the first. No, it was. It, I got it through uh, a friend of mine. Let's see, a friend of mine who kind of started out being he, he was like our first unofficial manager we actually just practiced in his basement like at the beginning of 1980 he would just let us practice in his basement he also had this massive collection that and he let us come over and just listen all night long and we could tape you know i was taping stuff off you know but he was really into i think he had a zine now that i think about it i i think i can't remember mm-hmm. but he had um he knew ken lester who was doa's manager forever yeah. who i believe passed away kind of recently um but he knew ken lester somehow and he uh, he just got somehow he managed to get his phone number and i think i just got it off him it was really we used to do that all the time we used to get uh my brother called iggy iggy pop's dad and um <laughs> we got the phone number of like pat patricia morrison who was then in the bags and the la band the bags and yeah. pat bag and we just we just had you know the biggest crush on her we loved the bags and so st- somehow my brother got the number and so i kind of started a fancy just and i would convince my my little brother had more balls than me so i just say <laughs> you do the interview and so he'd do the interview so we've got great i i just found a bunch of cassettes of my my little 12 year old brother interviewing like chip kinman from the dills and um pat bag and just you know and joey shedhead was one of the first people who said yeah i'll do the interview so once i had talked to him on the phone i i kind of lied and said well we have a fanzine can i call you back and do an interview and he's like yeah sure why not you know so finally we just we we actually called him and asked him you know probably two hours of of questions you know but um that that you have to put out as a podcast like these old interviews i I would i know i've been i've been trying to figure out a way to do something like that where i could i could just you know all of these fun found audio bits that i've i've got um just somehow put them out there i've done that i i even kind of restarted my old soundcloud account just to put it up there and then share it on social media because there, there's just some really funny things, you know? And I mean, you know, it, it, the, 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 the diehards would love it, you know, but not everybody would, would even understand it, but it's um, I, I spent, I've spent some time trying to just clean them up digitally, you know, get them digitizing everything and get them all kind of cleaned up because it's, it's all on just really poorly treated cassettes that have sat in a, you know, a box or a Tupperware container for the last, you know, however many years. So, yeah. But, uh, what- did you interview Iggy Pop's dad or did your brother interview Iggy Pop's dad? Well, 
Yeah, so I don't know. And don't even ask me how we got the number. We, we, <laughs> I think my brother uh, just looked in the in. The, um, it was. I don't think they lived in. I think Ann Arbor. I think they yeah. lived in Ann Arbor. Yeah. And his and they. We knew that his that Iggy's last name was. Uh, I knew. We knew that his name was James Osterberg. So my brother found a James Osterberg. Called him, and it turned out. And I think his dad was a teacher or something. I don't remember what it was, but called him, and and I. I. It's the greatest thing ever. It's my brother who sound. He sounded like a really young girl. He's like, is is Iggy there? And then the the, the guy goes, who? And he goes, is Iggy there? And he goes no jimmy's on tour right now and then so he <laughs> my brother just starts saying so you know I mean, it was just really adorable and really funny and uh i, I uh i just told him, i i just mentioned it to my brother just a couple days a few days ago i go do you remember that and he goes of course i do you know like, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah but he you know again he wasn't a dick he just he just put up with it i'm sure he gets you know he probably other kids have called him i don't know but yeah it was it was really really funny stuff um so did, yeah, so I'll figure out something to do with it, you know, put it out somehow. But did any of the issues of your zine come out back then? Did you put out? Yeah, yeah, uh, we had well, we had a bunch. I had a uh, the first zine we had. We we started. A, <laughs> pardon me. We we started a, something called the Sex Pistol Fan Club. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, that's and so the awesome. whole. Yeah, it was ridiculous. It, it really had nothing to do with the band. I mean, other than the fact that we loved it. But we, the reason that we did it was because we were trying to get local radio to play anything, anything from the Sex Pistols, and they just wouldn't. And so we, we found a guy in uh, the local kind of uh, just the rock station, um, and there was a guy named Bruce Van Dyke. He was the DJ there, and he was super nice. He'd always talk to us on the phone, and he, he had a little bit of an idea about what punk rock – and we'd say, you know, could you just sneak in? Like, we, you know, we'd say, like, we, we, we you know, th th I, we swear th this song doesn't have any curse words, you know? And he'd be like, well, I, you know, I have to talk to my program, my man, you know, music director, whatever. So we finally, like, we finally got him, I think, to play, I, I might have been pretty vacant or something. But we, the way we, we, we thought if we had a fan club and, and we made, we'd go down to the local, there was a supermarket that had one of those self-serve copy machines. And this is back when, you know, it, it was just, it, it smelled really toxic and it, you could rub the paper right after and it would come right off in your hands. <laughs> yeah. And we just made these fake flyers and we just took a bunch of cut out stuff from like Cream Magazine and wherever we, you know, old enemies or whatever, just the pistols. And then we put Sex Pistol Fan Club and then we put our phone number and at the time, my brother and I still lived at home with my mom. And so we would post those around town just so that we could maybe get calls from somebody who who loved the pistols or, you know, <laughs> so we'd have friends and we could talk to them about it, you know, and no one ever called like not one person called. I was like, I would have called if I'd see a flyer like that. Yeah. Be like, I'm going to give these guys a call. I got to see what's going on here. But Bruce Van Dyke, the DJ, was like uh, really nice to us and he'd talk about us on the air and then. You know, he just uh, when Sid died, we we begged him to do a Sid Vicious tribute, you know, and I still have that on tape somewhere. He's like, well, you know, the Sex Pistols fan club uh, just gave me the sad news, you know, and it was really this <laughs> just crock of shit. But it, it it got us. I got our foot in whatever door we were trying to get in. It was really just to get local um, music uh, or locals to 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 um, to just acknowledge punk rock, you know, because there just wasn't anything, anything at all. Couldn't find it anywhere. So that kind of helped us. And then we got this guy, uh, a guy named Carl Nesbitt, who was like a, a just a college uh, DJ. And we, we convinced him to have a new wave uh, night kind of thing. And so we would literally bring records down. He'd sneak us through the back door, let us bring our records in. And then we'd have to go, we'd have to get out because he couldn't have people in the station while he was there. And he'd play, he'd, he'd play, 
you know, music that we, you know, Sham 69 and <laughs> whatever, you know, we'd, we, we'd always try to find whatever song so that he wouldn't get in trouble with, you know, cuss words or whatever. But yeah, yeah. So that kind of helped out a little bit. But oh, that's yeah, so whole, awesome. So ridiculous. The whole thing was just just anything to try to get music, the, the punk rock music. And then uh, the Ramones came to town. And this was, would have been like 1978. They were opening for Eddie Money. And we heard it on the radio and I just said, there's no way that's, that's not, that can't be true. There's no way the Ramones are playing with Eddie money, you know, like, <laughs> and so I called the station. I'm like, did you just say that the Ramones are opening? I, I was like, are you sure it's the Ramones from New York? And they're like, yeah, it's the, it's the fucking Ramones. So that, that was the start of, of, of what really be, started, started to become like the sense that there were, it was a scene because all of the kids at the show, all of the kids that were standing in line in the front of the line were all there for, the Ramones. I was like 20 of us basically. Mm -hmm. And we were all there for the Ramones and the rest of back then Eddie money was like kind of a, you know, a top 40 guy with two tickets to paradise. And so he was kind of a, like all these little kind of teeny bopper young girls that, that were there for Eddie money. So um, it was there. We were all talking like, where are you from? Like, what, what, what do you listen to? And we all kind of was like, we were all like, okay so we have we have people here that like the music we like you know and yeah. so that was kind of the beginning all everybody that was there ended up being a, a a pretty vital part of whatever little underground scene reno had for a number of years and that was uh that was kind of the start of it that's when we kind of knew that, that we we had something to build on i guess you know so well key congo powers when he was on uh was talking about how he set up the ramones fan club in very much the same sort of way in la uh -huh. <laughs> and and like in michael alago when he was on kind of did the same thing with the dead boys in new york so you kind of get the sense that punk rock it's amazing yeah like it's like this place where all these kids that are like obsessed with rock and roll and have this sort of fandom are going and eventually all these people wind up doing incredible things for music and, and culture in general but like yeah. it's awesome that all you guys are kind of like just trying to find any way in to support this thing that you believe in yeah and and, and it, you know i think about it now and i and, and i i think god if i was young would i would i be like that now you know like would you have because it, like I always say, had we had the internet back then, who knows what the fuck we would, you know, who knows where, where we'd be now. Like there, there, there was just, but I, but I also think that because it was such a mysterious thing and there was just the, you couldn't immediately get to know anything about a band. You'd really have to, I mean, I suppose if you lived in LA, you could, or you lived in New York, but if you were in the Midwest or if you were in, in Reno or, you know, in just a smaller town in any part of the world, um, with with no media very little media very little culture you know you really had to search it out and 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 uh, you know i don't know why i was so passionate about it i don't know why it called to me so strongly but it just it just felt like the thing you know like i i it was the first time in my life i felt like i i could be a part of something that was was productive and cool and and yeah it was a little violent it was a little sketchy and it was a little scary but i i just immediately sensed that uh good could come out of it for some reason i mean i think the the clash kind of gave me that sense i think the pistols kind of brought me into it the pistols and the ramones were just fun or or just kind of chaotic and you know just a bunch of crazy you know assholes basically but the the clash like had a there was like this sense of purpose and this message and this 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 i don't know it 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 it, it, it was to me it was just as punk rock but it just had this this sense of um um, I don't know, just the social aspects of it really, really, I, I related to that more than I did like talking about 
you know, the queen or, or, you know, um, you know, beating up, beating somebody with a baseball bat, you (laughs) know, (laughs) beating on the bat with beating on the brat with a baseball bat. But yeah. um, Yeah. That was, you know, it all, all of it was, I I fell in love with it, you know, like, and and then I'd hear like popular stuff like generation X or, or the buzzcocks. And that was even a whole other limb to go on, you know, to climb on. And, And so the whole thing was just so terribly exciting and just, uh, I just, I loved it all. And, and I just couldn't, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I really, I, I was so, so completely overwhelmed by the whole thing. I, I threw away records. I wish I, I, I I'd kill to have now, but just all my old rock and roll records, I just got rid of. I felt, I felt like it was sacrilegious to have them in the same fucking room as, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> all mod cons by the jam. You know, I just felt like it shouldn't, they, they, you know, they, they shouldn't even be in the same room. Well, there's that amazing scene in 24 hour party people where after they go and see that sex pistols at the lesser free trade hall show and uh-huh. they come back and he's just tearing all the posters off the wall, <laughs> like must go, <laughs> must great. go. And it's something, yeah, so universal that just like, absolutely. It's like a convert. Like you said, you mentioned it, it's like a calling and it's almost like a, it's a conversion, but it's like, it still has that weird effect. You know, it's still, yeah. I have kids on it who are, who are younger than me that are coming on it and still kind of talk about that same sort of like, when they hear it, just something clicks and it just, it changes them. Oh, well, I love that. That's, I loved that you said that because I, I don't have a real good connection with what the youth are up to these days, you know? I, and, and so I always, I often wonder, I, I, am I just missing it? Is there this great new sort of genre, this great new form of, of uh, punk rock or underground music that I just don't know about where kids are really, you know, and, and of course it, of course there is, you know, and, and it's kind of cool that I don't know anything about it. I'd be uncool if I did in a way, you know, like, but yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, I, I, you know, that's it, to me, it's the greatest thing ever. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't really ever forget about it. You know, to me, it's just, it, it, it helps shape wh- whoever I am. It definitely helps shape me and, and, and any, any good that I may have said or done. I, you know, I, I fully believe that I, that it's all because of just of, punk rock and and hardcore underground music basically you know just it just really like i said it really helped shape shape me as a human being what be like even before the first that ramones concert that you went to what was the first concert concert you went to oh shoot well i you know when i was a kid i you know we were pretty poor growing up so i i, I kind of was a late star i didn't really start going to, to concerts until i was maybe 16 17 um but i saw man you know um i had my mom's then boyfriend ex-boyfriend had uh bought tickets i was a huge led zeppelin fan and he bought tickets to go see led zeppelin at the uh oakland stadium and uh i was just out of my mind because i was such a huge zeppelin fan and that that was the tour that robert plant had a it, it was either he got an accident or some there was a, there was two things that had happened where they had to cancel tours. One was he was in an accident, but the other one was, I think his son died, and they canceled the tour. And I was devastated. I was just like, wow, you know. Um, but uh, you know, everything from Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, uh, Rush, I saw a few times, UFO, Montrose, who you know were just the you know early uh, when Sammy Hagar was still in the band. Um, you know, just a lot of that kind of stuff. Just, um, I'm trying, God, I'm trying to think. Yeah. And even stuff like my mom made us go see Leon Russell, which at the time wasn't very cool, but it ended up being one, uh, an amazing concert. And, um, you know, it, it, it just kind of snapped me out of just, you know, I was pretty narrow in the rock and the hard rock stuff. I was, I was really obsessed with at the time, 
But um, yeah, I would go anytime, you know, I, I would go anytime my, my, I had a friend that was, there, there weren't a lot of concerts in Reno at the time. So we'd, ha we'd have to drive down to Sacramento or drive down to the Bay Area and see, you know, there were a lot back then they were, they had the day and the green concerts, which were like an all day thing, just, you know, eight, seven, eight bands, you know, and it'd be anything from like, you know, foreigner Jefferson Starship, whatever it was, you know. So, and 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 at back then, you know, it, it was funny. I remember thinking like seven dollars, six dollars, seven dollar ticket. That was like, oh my god, can we afford this? You know, like is this something we want to invest yeah. in? You know? The inflation of concerts. You get now what two bands for like three hundred dollars. So right, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. Were there any like local? not even necessarily local bands but even like sort of like barrier bands or sacramento bands that were kind of happening like that would be opening these shows or playing like i guess tower of power and cold blood would be going in san francisco i'm just trying to think of like were there smaller rock bands at that time that you, you were into um there there was a i mean in terms of like punk rock stuff or not new even wave necessarily stuff? punk rock even even pre pre uh new wave stuff like just even hard rock local bands or kind of like what sort of semblance of like uh like were you able to pick up on any sort of like local music that was happening? At the well, it, the, the, the thing about the thing about it was, is that back then. So when I was like underage, um, it, it really the, the clubs, it was all about top 40 stuff. All the mm -hmm. bands were doing covers there. You didn't hear about bands doing like their own stuff. And uh, when I first started getting the inkling of wanting to be a, a, a be in a band, I, I put out the word that I, you know, I was like 15, I think, the first time I joined a band. And it was just this hard rock band that did all cover stuff like, you know, Led's, uh, not Led Zone, but like uh, Richie Black Blackmore's Rainbow and UFO. And, you know, that's but, awesome. Three yeah, stars. I was. Um, yeah, well, that I was I, I joined a band called ba they were called Bastille and they spelled it B-A-S-T-E-E-L. And the guitar player was was this huge Richie Blackmore fan, but also loved like Rush. And so he kind of turned me on to Rush and they called themselves they, they referred to themselves as progressive metal, you know. Yeah. And so I had to learn all these songs and I, and I was terrible. Like I didn't I was I was barely 15. I didn't have much of a voice. I, I was a poor kid, so I didn't have cool clothes that I could wear. We we ended up playing uh, two parties. We played a New Year's Eve show, like 70, I think 1976, we played at this this house with this other band called Starstruck. And then, um, and it was just, I'm so happy that there's no way in hell that was ever documented. There's no video, <laughs> there's no internet, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, you couldn't find it if you looked. Um, but yeah, I, there weren't really any, there weren't, you know, the, there was no mode like there wasn't in this idea that other than like big rock and roll concerts, um, at least in my world, there was there wasn't even a thought that you could just go to a club and see a great show because you were if you weren't 21, you weren't going to get in. Mm -hmm. And, they, you know, they cover bands were a dime a dozen. So and then you'd, you'd hear about some guy like the big the big guy in, from Reno was this guy, Chuck Ruff, who was the drummer. He ended up becoming a, the drummer for the Edgar Winter Group. And um, I think he played on like Frankenstein that that era. And um, he was like a hometown hero. He'd come back into town and he'd, <laughs> he'd have a, a band. Everybody go, oh, Chuck Ruff's got a new band. And it seemed like every week Chuck Ruff had a new band, you know, <laughs> but we could never go in even if we wanted to. We were just too young. And so there wasn't any uh, there wasn't a sense of like, hey, you know, let's let's when we turn 21, we can go see great bands. Finally, it was like, yeah, you know, nobody we don't really care if anybody's you know covering uh, how long has this been going on or whatever top 40 songs that were, you know, happening at the time. So it really wasn't until, again, the punk rock thing kind of like made us 
the the idea of going into a club like it wasn't until i saw the footage of like the pistols uh in england or like the ramones at cbgb seeing like where everybody was right up front that i even thought you could do that i even yeah. didn't even know that existed and so that again that was another thing that just caught it stuck into my head i was like well how do we get to do that and of course we learned you just go badger some club some guy that owns a bar that's doing shitty and you just go can we uh would you let us come in and do a, like a saturday afternoon deal or a sunday afternoon deal and that's kind of what we did we i i hit up every bar in town and 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 vfw hall you know i found out you could rent a, a, a vfw hall for like 50 bucks and and uh so that that really helped so once we started to get band out of town bands interested that's that's the first thing we did we just started renting out uh, halls we also started our own venue called the rad house uh in the summer of 80 it was essentially it was the back it was a converted garage that um behind a big house that a bunch of people lived in and the people that moved into the main house uh before they moved into that house they were letting seven seconds very early on like early you know the january february march of, of 80 um practice and play in their basement and we'd play in front of maybe if we were lucky there'd be 15 people there it was mostly like rock rocky horror picture show fans or you know just yeah. just the other freaks in the city you know like the few freaks that there were and and then when they moved into this other big house they said hey we got this back house do what you guys want if you want to convert it so we fucking covered it in graffiti put up a bunch of egg cartons built a stage and we turned it into a venue called the rat house it's like the worst worst part of reno like the worst neighborhood at the time and but we knew that nobody would care nobody in the neighborhood would give a shit they wouldn't really care if we were these dumb punk rock kids putting on shows and then uh do we seven seconds played two shows and they went really well and then we invited doa the first time and they said yeah we'll do it and doa young canadians came through Whoa, played at the rat I no house idea. i had no idea young canadians did a, a tour of the u.s that's yep. amazing yeah it was it was it was brilliant and uh uh zippy pinhead was in a band called los populeros he was yeah. he was roadieing for him and uh they ended up hanging they loved reno because they could come and drink for cheap super drink all night long and gamble and food was cheap at the casinos you could you know pay a buck and get a full meal and you know it was just everything was like they loved that part of it you know yeah. but, they, but they really loved the scene too it was very small but it was really friendly and you know uh the you know it was just a it was a, it was just a very uh you know uh open friendly scene and i think back then some of the some of the bands really appreciated that, that kind of thing you know like they could it was and, and it was on the way you know if you were going from san francisco to like salt lake or denver why not hit reno you know it's like yeah well, and it feels like what you're doing is very much like that's like the hardcore scene that exists to this day. Like this idea that you're going to hanging out with a bunch of kids, you're playing like a makeshift venue, yep, and then you're crashing with them. Like that's and that's what the scene is. Like that's you know, like it's taking it out of the clubs, taking it out of that sort of professional like rock space and bringing it into like this completely unique space. Absolutely, yep. Were yep. There were there any like first wave kind of you know punk and new wave bands prior to your scene starting in Rio? um no there was a uh there was a band that that identified itself as new wave called bellevue and and we were obsessed with finding out who these guys were because we saw <laughs> they played the the sparks uh sparks is like the sister city of reno yeah. and they played the sparks public library and i just remember seeing this flyer and they played in the afternoon i remember i had to 
I was working. I might, it might've been a school thing, but I was working and I couldn't go see it, but I was obsessed. I was like, who is this band? You know? Yeah. And this is, this is my, almost my favorite story, but it never sounds as fun as it does in my head. Back then on Saturday nights, I, me, my brother and I shared a room. We were still living at home. And this would have been like 70, probably 79, early 79. If you, we turn on, we, if you turned on the, if you turned on uh, the dial, at, I forget what the, what the number was at, at a certain time at 11 o'clock on Saturday nights, you could pick up this station out of San Francisco um, uh, K K San K S A N. And they had this show called the, um, the outcast hours and, it, and they would the outcast hour and they would play three hours of just punk rock and new wave. And you could barely, it would be like, you know, you could hear it to the way, but we would, I would literally record it off. I had this little uh, cassette recorder and I would record it off of the shitty airwaves and there would, it would just come in, come in and out. And, and I, 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 it, I would write down the names of when they back, when they voice track, they'd say, okay, that was blah, blah, blah. I'd write them all down. I write the names of the songs. Cause I was just like, all right, I'm going to find somehow or another, I'm going to find out about this band. And that's actually how I found out about, um, um, you know, gosh, I mean, I'm trying to think uh, uh, the Avengers uh, were, you know, they were first, first time I heard them, but they, uh, they played a song and it was just amazing. It was like total Iggy and the Stooges, real rock, just real snarly guitars. And they said, uh, all right, that's a band from Reno called Bellevue. That's a song called Horrible Hervey. And I was, and my brother and I just said, what did he just say? <laughs> did he just say from Reno? So that, that was the start of our fascination with this, this just, elusive band called Bellevue. And um, so we, we eventually met the guitar player, uh, Jim Diedrichson, and it was he and his, his brother, Mark, it was a bass player. And then their drummer was John Bell, who was like, ended up becoming the, the, in the at least in the first couple of years, the, the early, he built a studio in his house. He had a four track studio set up in his house. And he, he would actually let, he would, he, his uh, wife and his daughter would go away and he'd use his daughter's bedroom for vo to, to do vocal tracking. So we recorded seven seconds, recorded our first two EPs there. Um, the Rex recorded there, the section eight, any of the bands that came out of Reno yeah. uh, kind of recorded there. And uh, John Bell was the drummer for Bellevue. So when we finally met them and I don't remember how we met them, but I remember just badgering them i'm like are you guys you know you guys want to play shows and they had just broken up and we're like no 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 you can't do this so they were a little more new wave but it was it was definitely more influenced by like like i said the stooges and, and they were they were more kind of a rock punk thing as opposed to a punk rock thing mm -hmm. but they were a great really great band and and we convinced them to get back together and and we we, we had we played a, a few shows together by then they'd added a, a singer who who i never thought was that great but uh when they were a trio they were just amazing and they never nobody in the world knows who they are like you if you do a google search for bellevue you you know you nothing you know what yeah, i mean it's yeah. like and i know jim jim Diedrichson ended up he played guitar with seven seconds uh, one summer but he ended up passing away and i i think i think the other two guys are still around but yeah that was the only thing we heard that was kind of like remotely cool coming out of arena before we did i mean we're it's sort of assumed that you know because we started in 80 and and started recording and playing and going out and that that we were sort of the first band. I mean, we you know, and technically we were the first sort, definitely the first like hardcore punk rock band at at Reno. But we you know, and the first band to kind of have an idea of like the scene and let's let's build a scene. You know, like mm -hmm. I think Bellevue were they were slightly older and they were just kind of what they were they they were 
I think they were more into doing covers of like, you know, MC5 covers and that stuff. But the originals that they had were really good. And I, I always wonder if there's there's got to be recordings somewhere of them, you know, on, on some old real tape or something that that uh, I really should look into it because they, they were pretty great. Yeah, because they would have had to have sent that tape up to that radio station, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was it was recorded well. John early on had a had a real good uh, feel for with with limited equipment he just knew how to get everybody into one room and you know it was always like let's we got let's we got one take of each song and then we got to go back and do all the vocals and at, we we would just get all our friends to come in and there'd be 14 people in this little girl's room <laughs> in one microphone nobody had headphones we i would guide them with my hands like i had the headphones and i'd be like all right one two three bah, bah, whatever we were singing you know yeah. and so he really had it at, he really had it down and stuff, but yeah, it was just, um, I, Bellevue just never really, never really got the, never got out there. So, uh, you know, the, the shows you mentioned at this, at the, the venue you guys started, was there, was that before or after you guys had played with the zeros? Our, our second, our, our second show ever was with the zeros. That was, uh, at a club called the townhouse, which was basically just a, an old biker bar. And, um, uh, my brother, who was 14, I think, went in. <laughs> Don't even ask me. I have no idea where he would even have the, like the. Anyway, he went in and he convinced the owner of the bar to let us come in and do all age, all ages shows, a couple <laughs> of them. So we did March 2nd, 1980. We did. We came in and we opened for a, a local band who built themselves as New Wave, but they were really just like George Thorogood in the Delaware Destroyer. It was that more of that kind of stuff, kind of <laughs> yeah. a blues rock thing. But they called themselves New Wave, uh, called the Mick Evans Band, and we opened, and um, we had we had our, we mostly had originals, but we were still covering like I think we covered Problems by the Sex Pistols, and we covered like Borstal Breakout from Sham, and um, we might have oh we did Pills New York Dolls. Um, That's awesome. And, yeah, and it, I mean no, it wasn't. I've got the cassette. <laughs> And it's, I, I, it's, it's really bad. And and we were just so, you know, we were just so thrilled to be on a stage. And I mean, it was such a big deal for Reno that the local news came out for it and, 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 and interviewed people like punk had hit, you know, Reno. And um, there was, there was, you know, a, a local talk guy uh, either the following Monday was, you know, and like, there's just no place for punk rock in Reno. Like it was just, <laughs> it was everything that we wanted. It was all the things that we wanted. We couldn't have, you know, we couldn't have, set that up ourselves you know but but that was really the and then the following week the, the march 2nd was the first march 9th was the second one and we got invited to um open for the zeros which at, by then we had been i mean i still think the zeros are one of the greatest bands ever absolutely um, and that that's a perfect example of a band that just not only were they great but they were all just i mean they hung out with everybody in the parking lot they went out and ate with us afterwards uh we became friends and and when seven seconds or early days of going down and playing like san francisco and the Mabui gardens and whatnot they were always like we'd stay at you know their house and uh one somebody in the band's house and and they were always so nice and down to earth and and great and you know that's always a, an extra thing when you you love a band musically and then you meet them and they're they're great you know that's kind of you can't beat that <laughs> they're, they're definitely a band that just from doing this show i've gotten a whole new level of appreciation for just like like you're saying like how influential they were being one of the first bands that was really going out there and playing other towns and like legit kind of just hanging with kids like you're not the yeah. first person to have a story like that involving them just being really supportive of of young people getting into this stuff 
No, and they were kids. I mean, yeah. they were they were kids. So it was like, yeah, it just it, it. But they they just had this poise about them, and they they were so perfect. Like on stage, they were just tight, and and uh, you know they they just they I, I, and we were the absolute opposite. Like we did, <laughs> we, we like our drummer. He only knew how to play this one beat. Our, our original drummer Tom. Um, I didn't fully know how to do power chords. Like I knew a friend of mine showed me how to do bar chords, but I still. I, I, I couldn't quite get my fingers to do what I wanted to do. So, and back then I wanted to, I really just wanted to be the guitar player. We had a singer, Dim Menace, and he was, by the time we got um, on stage, he was already completely drunk, just absolutely wasted out of his mind. He sang like half the set and I sang the rest of the set. I, I wrote all the songs, so I knew them. I just didn't want to sing the songs, you know, initially. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I actually listened to the tape not that long ago, and I was just like, "Wow!" I, you know, I would hope that maybe after years of not, I'd be like, "Hey, that was pretty." You know, we did pretty good. I was like, "Nope, no, we were really shitty." <laughs> <laughs> it's also amazing, like you know, the tape keep come coming up, and like the the advancement of the cassette, and just how important that was. Yeah, to, to kids and making this music, like you know, obviously you, your first few releases are all cassettes, but yeah, it just feels like that was a real democratizing thing to kind of come into the picture for sure yeah because we 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 just couldn't fathom the idea of i mean back then vinyl to do vinyl was really cheap you know you could do like a couple hundred vinyl you know a couple hundred bucks and it wouldn't take that long but we even then we didn't even have that kind of money so a cassette buying a pack of cassettes and just dubbing off a bunch of stuff and making homemade covers you know I, it just made absolute sense to me. We mm -hmm. we started a, our own little tape label called Vicious Scam, and we we released uh, the the two set, first two seven seconds. I think we released a couple of other local things, and it, you know it was immediate. I could I could make something. I, I I did a zine that was a cassette zine kind of for a while that I cannot find. I know I've got it somewhere. I just can't find the original. But um, I love cassettes. The whole the whole cassette thing was really just. I was really into it for the longest time. You know, I I thought it was great and. It was a pain in the ass, you know, like, when, you know, they had to, you know, I, I also was, you know, I'd go to Kmart or, or, you know, whatever, and just buy like a pack of six for like a dollar. And they were just the worst, you know, the worst, um, you know, quality. quality you yeah. Imagine, you know, but. Uh, it, did you put out other stuff on Vicious Scam? Not just. Yeah, I put. Yeah, I put out uh, Urban Assault, which was they were actually from Lake Tahoe, which was about 50 miles from Reno. Mm -hmm. um, and that included Troy, who became our drummer. Also, Dan Posniak, the guitar player, was in Seven Seconds back in the uh, mid-'80s. But uh, they were kind of like our brother band. Like we Once we knew that there was like a cool little scene going on up in South Lake Tahoe, um, we, we were like, this is great. They were like 25 kids up there that would go to shows. They'd come down to Reno and see shows, and they'd say, well, how do you do shows? And so we would – we would book shows up at they, there were, uh, this guy that was an old, um, old, slightly older. Um, he was a professional sn a snowboarder at, at the time. I forget his name, but he he had this crazy A-framed house in the middle of like this just a forest area. There was like trees that you like you looked around and you felt like you were in the middle of like Colorado or whatever. <laughs> but he would let us come in and uh have these crazy shows and and he'd just move everything out of the way and he'd make us a bunch of food and the double the double cool part of this was that this was right when mtv started and we didn't have mtv on our cable system in reno but we we kept we'd go up to tahoe and we'd, we'd literally spend the entire weekend we'd play a show on friday night yeah. we had a place to, we had we could stay there stay there we'd we'd get done make a bunch of food 
watch MTV all night long, just waiting for whatever cool video, you know, like, like yeah. I remember at one point, like Motley Crue fast as a shark was like the, the be- I think, wait, was that Motley Crue fast as a shark? I, you, you've, no, you've no, no, no. Livewire. Okay, good. Live okay, wire. I know Livewire. Definitely. Fast as a shark was like, except I think that band except, but that Motley Crue uh, live wire was the coolest thing at that time on MTV. <laughs> so we would just literally wait for hours and just wait for it to come on. And then, um, and then we just hang out the next day, play in the snow or go do whatever. And then th- th- on Saturday night or Sunday night, we just watch all MTV all night long. I, I think about that now and I, I go, wow, what, 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 what were we thinking? But yeah, that um, they had this cool little scene that kind of that kind of surrounded they, they surrounded Urban Assault. That was the name of the band that um, Troy and Dan had, and um, we brought them. They came and played. They were just a really great punk hardcore band, and um, and there were there were all these little towns, sort of you know like you know 50 30 60 miles away from you know Carson City Nevada had a little scene there was a band called the Yobs um we put out a cassette of, of, of them of them they were kind of more snarly like kind of more iggy i guess kind of stuff um i the Rex kind of were on their own they put out i think i recorded their first demo but i don't think they released that and then they went in with John the guy from Bellevue and they recorded in his studio and they put out their own thing but um yeah everybody was kind of you know there was just this kind of cool little you know, we were all just misfits in this really shitty part of the world, you know, and and uh, it, it it just meant so much for us all to combine our efforts and and try to do whatever we could. So if anybody was doing a, a tape label or a, a, a zine, everybody gathered, you know, rallied and, and whatever we needed, you know, whatever help we could provide, we'd do it. And same with, you know, the putting on shows that was just like, you know. I just get, I need, you know, please, I, you know, I'll put the money up, but you know, I need people to help me keep people from breaking the mirror in the bathroom or help me clean it up afterwards. Cause it was always me and like a, a friend or a girlfriend just sweeping and mopping and pick, you know, cleaning up puke and blood and whatever the hell there would be. in it. You, you, you established the archetype for every DIY show promoter that has existed <laughs> since then. Like you really, well, I, you know, it was that way worldwide yeah. that was going on. You know, later on, you found out, oh, yeah, this stuff is I, I did the same thing in, you know, Canada. I did the same thing in Spain. You know, like every you, you realize that this was just going on kind of disconnected from everybody else. But we still, you know, I, I'm I'm so I'm, I'm still really fascinated by how that all came together. Anytime I've read a book uh, like Bob Mould's book or I, I've read a, a biography, it, every, you know, when it comes to getting into punk rock, it's almost the same story. Exactly. You know, the way we all kind of got turned on to whoever. And uh, I, I love it. I just think it was the greatest thing. And I think knowing that just felt like, again, if you were just a kind of a, an, a, a just a, a weirdo that didn't fit anywhere, it just felt like, wow, cool. You know, I think I found a, I found a tribe finally, you know, like I, I found my people. I, I don't know. And yeah. so, so that was incredibly liberating for me personally, because I was pretty much a loner and just a, you know, I didn't, I didn't really fit anywhere at that point. That guy's also got to be one of the first professional snowboarders, right? Like that's super early into the sport as far as it, I know. Yeah, for sure. He was, he was like a big surfer guy at from, he was friends. It turned out he was from like Orange County and he was buddies with the guys in social distortion or who eventually would be in social distortion. But he, um, yeah, I the first time I'd ever heard of snowboarding, I, I I was through people in Tahoe. They they were I guess doing it. I don't know if it was a uh, you know like a you know ESPN 
popular type of thing at the time. I, I didn't know that much about it, but I, he was the first one I ever heard about it. And I, I also knew that it was really heavily connected with the skateboard scene. And a, a lot of my friends were like really good skaters. And so, yeah, I just, um, I don't know. I, I, I think about it now. I always wonder, like, I'd, I'd love to talk to him and say, you know, like, you know, <laughs> like, what, what were you thinking? He, I, he, he would just drink and, and he'd sit out. You know, he didn't really care. It was like, I think, I think his parents owned the, the A-framed house. And um, <clears throat> I just think he was excited to have people, you know, weird freaks over. And there were cute girls there. And I'm sure it was all, you know, just a kind of a fun weekend. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You always there's always some sucker with a big house. That's yep. going to let you put on shows. That's the <laughs> bread and butter of punk. Absolutely. We had a few of those and you know, they were just, they had, they, they were good sports and eventually they'd be like, all right, enough's enough. Yeah. Like there you was burn a, them out. you burn them out eventually. Absolutely. Well, there was a, a guy named Alvin who was like a, a North of Reno. There's a, the um, pyramid Lake Indian reservation. And uh, we just ran out of halls. We ran out of places to do shows. And Alvin said, Alvin was always going to shows. And um, he said, Hey, if you guys want, if you want to book shows, book them in my garage up in Pyramid. And I'm like, really? And he's like, I said, you know, you, you don't have to ask me twice. And so uh, for like probably like half a summer, we booked um, Social Distortion. We booked Black Flag when Dez was still in the band. We booked, um, uh, God dang, I, did, I think Decroitz had played a show. Whoa. Um, there were like a few, a DOA came and played a show. And it, it was great. It was, I mean, it was just out in the middle of nowhere and but his house was so big and he would just like again move all of the furniture and you know I, I it says a lot i mean yeah social distortion probably even then they weren't like the social distortion now but they were you know cool they came out and hung out and they played in front of like 50 kids you know and a it was great it was it was it was one of the coolest things ever but the same thing i mean black uh doa played so many times in reno and they just always had the same attitude they were just like we're here. Let's, let's do it. You know, like they were always, they always were great guys and black flag, same thing, you know, just super cool and seemed grateful that, that, that just to have a show and, and be able to get on to make a few bucks to go get to the next city, you know? Yeah, no, I, th I find that part, this period of hardcore so fascinating where you do have the, the sort of establishment of this network, you know, and it's, I yeah. guess it's like an international network too, because eventually it's a definitely an international network for sure. Because of DOA. It's it's so awesome that yeah, like it's all you guys changing numbers and exchanging numbers and just literally building a scene. Yeah. Without really knowing what the what that like what the hell we were doing. You know, there was no mm -hmm. real blueprint. Um all, you you knew that the the main guys, uh Black Flag, DOA, Dead Kennedys, you knew that if they gave you information, you were in good hands. Like if they liked you and they they returned your phone calls you were you were set because they were the they were the ones that went out and paved the way you know and and so um we were very lucky that all those bands sort of took us under uh, under their wing and they they liked seven seconds early on and they would help us get shows in the bay area and you know down southern california eventually and so we we just um we benefited from that and we learned, I mean, I, I, I was just constantly badgering those guys. Like, so, so if I want to do this, you know, do you think I should do this? You know, they, and they totally, uh, Ken Lester, DOA's manager, that guy was just, I remember calling him up in the middle of the night, not even thinking about any kind of like what, it, you know, what he had been doing or whatever. And I was like, Hey Ken, uh, so I, I'm thinking about doing this. And he'd be like, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> you know. But they were great. Like you said, you could call somebody and you could get, uh, you call Shedhead or Ken Lester and 
Dave Gregg or whatever, and you get like 20 phone numbers from people across the country or people up in Canada. And, and you, you'd, it, it was just an instant network. And you were, you were thrilled to get your own information that you could share with anybody. Like, I remember feeling good when bands were calling me going, Hey, do you know somebody, you know, any kids in Nebraska? You know, I'd be like, well, as a matter of fact, the, you know, there's a 15 year old that, you know, sneaks bands into his garage when his parents are on vacation, you know, but no, it, it, it just really was a great thing. And, and, uh, that all was just all self. Everybody was just, we were just using our own sort of idea sense of, 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 I don't know. It, it, it is a, it, it is a phenomenon for sure. It was pretty cool. And, you know, I, I kind of wonder, like, I mean, did bands do that? Did rock bands do that before? Did, did, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. did, like it was, has that always been going on? And they just did, you know, they were just playing a different style of music and, Oh, you know, <laughs> I'm sure it went on on some level, you know, like the, but like, not like this, like this really does like from what, from all the stuff I've kind of researched and looked into, like, yeah. And even if you look at that first wave of kind of like punk slash quote unquote, new wave bands, like the way they toured was really different. Like I've had a bunch of people on that, that were doing that kind of early touring right. and it still was like, you know, you'd go, you know, drive out to the city miles away. There's no logic to how it's booked. And you'd uh -huh. maybe play there for two days or do two sets a day at a club and then the next town or you'd be opening for some bigger band. But like, yeah, like it really feels like it's the, it's the wave you're talking about where this sort of this whole idea of like a music scene in the sense that you're staying with the people that are doing your show is right. really born. It feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And you, it, it was almost like you sort of had to have not the um, you almost needed like Barry from the Necros, you needed his blessing if you wanted to play in Ohio and <laughs> Detroit or whatever, or you needed, you know, you, you, ha you had to get in good with the, the Stearns if you wanted to get into to LA or, or, you know, I like, there were these key points, the big boys, you had to get to know, you know, know about Biscuit or Tim, like if, if you wanted to play Austin, everybody had a, had the scene people, you know, to, mm -hmm. to contact. And if, once you got in with them, you were in, unless you really fucked up somehow, but you know, you were in. And so, it just um, once Reno started to kind of get a, a good rep for being a great little scene. Um, I mean, we we were turning away bands. We couldn't. We, I, I couldn't book. Uh, I, I couldn't find enough venues to to book the bands that wanted to come through. You know, and uh, and we did some crazy shit. You know, I remember we had a, a sh we had I had a show booked with the band Aggression from Oxnard, and they were they were set. I was in this. I had a storage unit, kind of just small storage space that I you roll up door literally the only source of power was up in the there was a light bulb at the top and you had to plug in unplug the light bulb find one of those like plug-in uh deals with the you know adapters and then <laughs> yeah. you plug the light bulb and then you'd have to run extension cords down the sides of the wall and then yeah it was fucking stupid like just completely <laughs> ridiculous and then forget about it sounding great it just but at least we you could have the vocalists would have a, a mic you know and i remember i had the show booked i promoted it and then and like at the last minute literally the day of i believe the guy the guy found out what i was doing and kicked me out he said hey i'm i i, I, I said you can't kick me out i paid and he goes i'm gonna give you your money back and you're lucky i don't sue you you're lucky i don't call the cops on you da 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 so we knew aggression was driving up to uh, I think they were coming up from Santa Cruz or something. And I knew that this was pre, you know, cell phones and pre-internet. So it was like, there was just no way to get a hold of them. You couldn't call anybody. Yeah. You couldn't call anybody in the band. So I said, I don't know what to do. Like they're coming up and they're going to be bombed. So I remember 
me and like three other friends were just down at this little town square in the middle of downtown Reno is this little area. Mostly like a lot of the skateboarders would go down there and do tricks. And we were just sitting there and I looked over, I happened to look down and I saw this, this little weird kind of a plate on the ground. And then I saw plug in and I was like, shit, what if we just like, <laughs> set it you, what do you think like could we do can we could we set it up you think I, and then we're like well we know the cops are going to come it's just a matter of you know and then i was like I, I was trying to imagine like seven seconds if we came into a town i i was like would we do it and I'm, i was like of course we'd do it of course we'd do it, you know <laughs> so i was like all right well at least we have that i not, not even knowing whether the outlet even worked or not you know and then luckily my friend ron said hey fuck it he goes let's do it in my apartment and i was like you want to have aggression play in your apartment he goes yeah why not he li literally lived in a, an apartment complex like a, an eight unit complex he lived on the bottom floor tiny like a, a two-bedroom apartment and uh i said if you're if you're into it and the band gets into town they say one so sh sure as shit aggression came in and the, the the bill was like seven seconds and aggression aggression got there we explained the details i said look you know if you guys don't want to do this i can i'll take a collection and i'll get you guys at least gas money and they're like hey we're here let's do it so we're like all right <laughs> so i just said why don't you know you guys play and then if the co it doesn't matter if we play or not and we'll, we'll i'll do a i'll do a i'll i'll get a bunch of money so that you guys will make some money they played about six songs and then um I, the cops must have pounded on the door like for 10 minutes before we opened it and then they, they stopped and it was just furious like like a bunch of different like billy clubs hitting the you know the door and the window and i opened the door and the guy the first cop i looked at he goes what in the fuck do you guys think you're doing and we're like uh we we had some friends and then da, 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 da. he goes you know i i get it but you gotta stop this right now like the, I, we, we've had like 10 complaints in the last 20 minutes you know so it was really funny it was just but that's the kind of shit you did because you were stupid and you didn't know, know any better really you know like I got to see photos from this show. This thing sounds amazing. I I wish I did have a recording of it, and I and I I I, I probably do on some shitty ninety nine cent cassette that isn't labeled. You know, it's yeah, or yeah. you know, but I I did record it. I had this little weird portable recorder that it had one little microphone built in, and I used to sneak in into. Uh, I'd go to down to San Francisco and I, I've got this amazing uh, recording of like, it was dead Kennedys and the plugs and the alley cats playing it at this big hall, 10th street hall. And I recorded the whole thing. I just stuck it in my pants and it came out really good. I've got the go-go's kind of just at the, the height of them uh, kind of becoming a big, big deal. They, they hadn't even recorded a full length album yet. And they they played and they were amazing. And oh, that's awesome. Just crazy shows. And so I would record local shows um and it they sounded pretty good i mean it was you know I, i'm sure they don't sound good now but yeah well i i, I got just for historical you know because that that period of the go-go's that you're talking about like that's amazing before that first lp comes out when they've got they still have like kind of like the punk songs still in the set like it was kind of a sur like they they were really surfy you know they had this whole surf thing and they were on i think they had a single on stiff out of yep, england yep. and then and they that was it though they weren't even like they were still not big stars but they were you could tell that there was a lot of buzz on them and um it was amazing they were incredible they just they they just were so good and i i, I still have that cassette i just found it that that one's labeled um the one that's it's my pride and joy is the plugs the the live plugs is like the great i mean there's still you can't find that fucking record i don't think it's ever yeah. been released and it, it's just they were one of the best live bands I'd ever seen. And they just he he just had that clean telly sound, but it still rocked. It just it still sounded really, really kind of 
they, I, they were amazing that band but uh, i've got a really great recording of them i mean there's dropouts and you know it's not there's probably there's points where you can hear like maybe i accidentally hit record and it's in the middle of it you know like yeah. whatever but it's so good and and it was at this um they were for a while they were doing shows at, there were two halls in san francisco one was called 10th street hall and the other one was called california hall and there were uh, some of the best shows i ever saw were there you know at adolescence black flag a m- bunch of times and all kinds of stuff but well it's just and it's like that's the uh you know the plugs are another band um that just you know i've got like a completely different appreciation for from talking to people like obviously those records are incredible but yeah they seem like they were on just like another level live back then yeah absolutely yeah they like they i i couldn't even because it was like punk but it was like it had a cleaner sound but it mm-hmm. there was no, it wasn't it wasn't bad clean. It was, there was still this sort of ominous. It was just the songwriting. He really wrote these great, he just had these great changes and stuff. And I, I, uh, I, I didn't know much about him. I'd, I'd heard, I think I even had, um, hang time. What was their album called? Uh, uh electrify me. Electrify yeah. me. Yeah. I think I had, I think I had that at some point. Um, but anyway, I, I love the record, but they, they, live they just blew my mind they blew every band they they played with like dead kennedys and they the offs played this great san francisco oh, band, band yeah well, so that, great and that, that one song like where it's just a number it's like some super yeah it's oh, a, that song's uh, killer that and everyone's a bigot they, yeah. they, were, they were great that band was so ahead of their time and just such a great band and they 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 the great thing with the offs is that they played every show they they were always like the opening <laughs> band so i got to see them like 12 times you know like but uh that was san francisco that that era was so great you know they had that, that band the mutants were amazing mm-hmm. um you know of course the nuns like you know just crazy great what a great scene i mean avengers of course yeah and flipper too i guess would have been going then and negative flipper, trend probably negative trend crime they were yeah. they're a whole other thing negative trend still one of my favorite but just just scary dark but great you know like that first that seven inch is just like i when i heard it the first time i heard it it scared me just the the guy's voice like you know uh, i just got back from the meat house he just had this weird voice like i didn't even know where he was from you know but yeah they were great um there were a few bands they were like and it was all different you know like mutants were kind of weirdly new wavy and pop but you know they had a that oh, was great. That 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 scene was really. I was I was I felt fortunate that we were kind of coming up right as that scene was. It, it was already established. Dead Kennedys were you know coming out of that scene as well. But um, that the Mabuhay Gardens was really the first club that I ever got to go into when I was still underage, and it was like uh, I I was so I I didn't even care who was playing. I if if I we just go and see a show. You know, like I remember going and that's how I saw Black Flag for the first time. They were. They, uh, we went to a record store in Berkeley and, and a guy uh, was getting ready to close. And he said, you know, you, you guys want to see how I kick people out of this, uh, my store when it's closing time. We're like, yeah. And he, he put on um, the fix me said the first EP and everyone left. And we're like, I want a copy. I'll, I'll buy one right now. But they were playing. He goes, well, they're playing tomorrow night. You should go check them out. We're like, we, and we were going to go back to Reno and we're like, all right, let's stay the night. So we stayed the night with a friend in Berkeley and went and saw him. And that's when Ron was still in the band. And it was just the most thrilling, dangerous feeling thing I'd ever, at that point I was like, wow, that that's like a different, that's a whole different kind of intensity that I haven't experienced it. You know? Yeah. So, so where were you making these friends in other cities? Were you just kind of going to punk shows and just talking to kids? 
No, this was even before. This was just friends we had, family members or people that lived mm-hmm. in, you know, the East Bay that that didn't care at all about punk rock. They didn't. They, yeah. they didn't. They they basically say, well, when you guys get back doing whatever stupid shit you're doing, the door will be unlocked. Come, you know, come in and eat. You know. So we, uh, Tom, our our first drummer, had um he his family was from like Richmond and Concord and that stuff. So we'd always have a place to stay. We 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 we'd try to avoid staying in the city. We just drive a little bit, and that way we could find parking and not have to worry about stuff but yeah eventually within you know that summer of 80 we, we because we got to know the zeros and uh their manager was this guy peter urban who worked with the dills and they he was kind of a scene guy he was uh, help he was real political too so he was i think he was always excited to to when he got to meet young kids that had a interest in left-wing politics you know i think that was like all right well if you if you like that you'll probably like this you know but he they were all really super helpful like they would they would again you know if if, if you needed a place to stay or if you wanted to know where a great place to get a burrito was you know they'd everybody knew where the record stores were and you know it was it was it was it was great it, was, it really opened our eyes to a, a, the cool little community down down in the bay area was was there a manager a yippie too like ken Lester? um you know that ken, he, yeah, I um uh, you mean Peter Urban? Yeah, was he a, a yippie? Because I know I know Ken Lester and and I can't remember the guy's name, the guy who managed the subhumans. Like it seems like yeah. the yippies were like the direct older generation that, like you're saying, had that kind of like you know, obviously political leaning, but they wanted right. all these young kids to be politicized and seemed to be really like you know, a lot of yippie venues seem to provide show spaces early on. Exactly. I don't think he was a yippie. I think he was he was he was younger. He was a younger guy. And I think he was just a a young guy with a lot of energy. And he was really wrapped up. He he was the first time I ever knew anything about the revolution, revolutionary worker party or their newspaper. Uh, He was he was he'd bring them to the shows and hand them out and stuff. And I, you know, I was I was dabbling. I was trying to I, I knew where my heart I knew that because my mom's influence politically, I knew that I I was sort of on that side of the fence. But I also was just like. I was big on, you know, it's all corrupt, you know, left wing, yeah. right wing, who gives a shit, you know, and that, I, that, because my favorite bands were kind of spilling that shit, yeah. you know, but he would, Peter was really great. And, and I think he was, uh, I don't know if he identified as a communist, you know, or whatever, but I, I think he had a, and I may be wrong about this, but you know, at some point the Dills, when they moved up to the Bay area from the San Diego area, they got they were they were always political, but they got they started literally like they would have a hammer and sickle flag on, on their stage. And and I and, and I I want to say that he had a big influence on that. He also he also ran a, a, a way pre sort of positive force, better youth. Organ- he he had a, an organization called New Youth, um, which did shows and they they I think they were involved with local benefits and 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 doing like food canned food drives if, if i'm correct I, I may have gotten that wrong but they he was he was really involved uh, in, in the scene in more than just the musical stuff and i know that he managed the dills and um and then uh the zeros and i think he probably managed a couple other bands but um he was yeah he was a great guy and and i i don't know if he's still around or not i i, I want to say that maybe he passed away i maybe he, i just heard that he passed away but yeah, that I, and, and at the time guys like that seemed way older than us, but it turned out that they really weren't. Like they yeah. they, they were only like a year or two younger than or older than us, so that was <laughs> it's kind of funny. And where did you first hear the Dills? Um, was it on that radio station? 
Uh, you know, the f- yeah, that probably would have been that radio station. But the first time I really got an idea of the Dills was that fucking Cheech and Chong movie um, <laughs> Up in Smoke. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I'm going to tell you this. This is such an embarrassing thing, but I think it's funny, too. Um, we lived up we, when we eventually my mom got to an apartment and we all we lived there for a number of years. Um, it was about a mile from the drive in theater. And I would get off work at I worked at Montgomery Ward, which. I don't know, the, the kind of old department store kind of thing. And I would get done and I would go, um, I'd get done. If I got done at night, I'd walk over to the the drive-in and I, cause we, we figured out how to, how to sneak in there and I'd go see what was going on. I just had nothing going on. So I just, you know, I was a loser. So I'd walk over and see what was playing. But when Up and Smoke was playing at that drive-in theater, my brother and I snuck in, I think seven times <laughs> so that I could, I brought my little recorder so that I could record just the Dills part from one of those little metal speakers at the drive-in theater. And I, I listened to that because I wanted to, I, I was weird. It was like, I, I, at that point you still couldn't find a lot of the records and, mm-hmm. and you, you know, you just, you'd have to go out of town to buy this stuff. And so just to have like their tiny little smith, you know, this little snippet of them. And, I, and later on, I found out that it was like, they were playing, it was like a sound check and um they were really unhappy with being in the film because it was it was like their first gig and they were just awful and i thought it was the greatest thing i'd ever heard like it literally that that little scene the dills scene which is super tiny um inspired me to want to play like we made me want us to be faster i remember going we have to find a faster drummer like we have to find someone that can play i mean this is before we heard bad brains middle class anybody and i just said we have to be able to play that fast and i listen to that stuff now and i'm like it wasn't even that fast you know it's like <laughs> like i remember the ramones seemed like they were the, such a they, they seemed like they were a fast band because the the strumming was really fast and furious you know but yeah so that would that kind of kick-started that but yeah i think the first time we heard the dills was just on that that old san francisco radio station and then um yeah, it was just a matter of finding a place that carried the the, the, the seven inches. There, there was actually a compilation called Saturday Night Pogo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think... Um, Rhino did it, I think, right? Exactly, yep. And and I think... Uh, hey, Mr. Big Mr. Big was on it, maybe? Mm-hmm. Or, or, yeah. And uh, so that was, you know, I thought that was the best song on the... on the. I, I thought they were the best part of that whole compilation, but... Yeah, yeah. They're- they're super underrated. Like another band that I think is, is, uh, I don't know. I, I love that single, but I, I can imagine like it's a danger house record. So those things are impossible to find. I know. I know. <laughs> yep. And, and they, you know, they, and they had, I think three, seven inches and they did that. Then they came, they kind of changed their style when they were starting to get kind of go off in the Everly brothers thing, which they eventually embraced, but they had that red rockers rule seven inch that came out on a canadian label actually Rugeletti um, records yeah exactly and and i remember everyone i knew that it was into the dills hated it i <laughs> i loved it I, I thought it was such a great move and they their voices sounded so good and i was like wow this is i know it's like different from the you know class war class war but i loved it it just had a um just a th- their own sound you know it was really different and great um bit, huge dills fan huge really big dills fan yeah, and that Ruccioletti Records is like a real interesting label. The guy who ran it is now like a VP at Clear Channel, and uh, really very high up there. But he wow used to do stuff with Bob Rock in the studio, and and uh, yeah, like once again, like a, a real kind of fixture of that Vancouver scene too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, did did wow. uh when did Poison Idea? When did you guys meet Poison Idea? Did they ever come through? Uh did we do Poison Idea? I don't think they. I don't think they did. They may have played later on when. Like I, I want to say that they came through and played a show 
when we were on tour for some reason, like I feel like there was like a poison idea DRI show that somebody else booked, but um, we played together. We actually played uh, that. That was another band that was like, well, initially we were supposed to play Pusshead, who was living in Boise, Idaho at the time, um, booked us with the Misfits, Poison Idea, and somebody else, Christ on Parade or somebody. What a show! Yeah, there's a flyer. There's actually a flyer that exists. You can look it up. And we were so ecstatic. We were like, oh, my God. We were we were literally going to drive from Reno, Nevada, play the show at the Misfits, and then come home. That was it. <laughs> like, we we weren't even going to – we didn't we didn't care about money. We were just like, hey, we're, we're playing with the Misfits. And uh, the Misfits broke up, and they canceled the show. And we were like, oh, my God. So Pusset ended up uh, changing – like, he moved the show – and he said, well, why don't you guys just come up, you know, two weeks later? And so he said, all right. So and I think Poison Idea stayed on the bill. And that, that I, th- I believe that was the first time we met him. But I I, um, I don't know. I don't think I saw him. I think I was doing an interview during their set or some stupid thing. But then I think the next year we went up to Portland. And uh, because they were the Portland band, we played mm-hmm. with them at, at uh, the old, um, oh, what was that sketchy place? Um, Satyricon? Satyricon, yeah. First time I ever saw somebody. No, it wasn't the first time I saw somebody shoot up. That was in Mabuhe Gardens, but this is probably the second time I saw somebody shoot up, like, like really openly in front of me. I was like, oh shit, you know. But yeah, they played, and you know, they were the kings of Portland. So it was like, you know, I think, and, and I think they booked the show or somebody involved, and and they, out of respect, made us the headliners, and we we're like, we gotta play after fucking Poison Idea, <laughs> like this is. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, we st- I was, you know, Tom, uh, uh, pig, you know, pig champion. I, I, we, we were always, we were on the phone and wrote letters and, and, um, he was one of those guys that had a lot of great information and, um, you know, the, the call, you know, all about the calling card shit probably, but that, that was, he was, he was one of those guys. I probably shouldn't say that. It's probably I, think, I, think, I think, I think the, uh, I think the, uh, statute of limitation is long yeah. expired on that. And, and to be honest with you, that's something that definitely stayed a part of hardcore for a very long time. So yep. if one of us is going down, I think we're all going to be going down. Absolutely. Yeah. We, there's, there's a lot of explaining to do in that situation. Yeah. yeah. But they, they, you know, he was, I remember for a while, he was one of the guys you could get, get call up and go, Hey, Tom, you got any numbers? And he'd, he'd, he'd have like 30 and <laughs> stuff. And he'd be like, okay, thanks, man. I remember when I finally got to that level where I had the numbers. I don't even know who I got them from. I, I, somebody from the Midwest <laughs> called me and I was like, yeah, what do you, here we go. You ready? <laughs> it's like, it was just such a part of it, though. You know, like you didn't, you just, you really couldn't book any. I mean, if you, unless you were a rich kid from, you know, Orange County or something, you couldn't afford to, to call, make the phone calls, mm-hmm. you know. And I had a whole, I had a whole system. I had the, the payphones were that I didn't hadn't used yet, you know, and I was really I had it down. I was like, I'm you know, I'm I'm gonna do this right if I'm gonna do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like what well, it it became, you know, because obviously, you know, these shows aren't making tons of money, so yeah, scams like that become part of the part of the lifestyle. Like you know, people working at restaurants giving you food at the back door after their shift. Oh or- yeah, yeah. If you had that hookup, you were stoked. Or like we had a friend that was the manager of a movie theater and he'd just say, bring yes. bring an empty cup and and he'd give us all the popcorn we wanted. He'd just fill our soda, you know. And then we'd just watch every shitty 80s movie that was coming out at the time, you know. <laughs> it was gold, though, you know. That was like. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, what about uh, Arizona and, and the feeders? Did you, did you remember the first time you guys played Phoenix or the, was there any crossover between those two scenes? 
Uh, we played with the Fiener. I think our first San Francisco, our first time we played in Mabui Gardens, I want to say was with, um, no, it wasn't the first time we played, but the second time we played, we opened for DOA and, fe- and the Feeders and they played. And um, my sister took this crazy photo of uh, Frank Discussion, who was wearing a like a long dress and uh, he he knew that she was taking photos. So he just stopped uh, the song and just lifted his the skirt up and, and flashed his dick. And I remember my sister has the photo. She put it in her fanzine. But um, they were they were crazy. They were bizarre and, and great. You know, but we didn't. Ha- I, I, they, I, I feel like they were kind of older guys or, or may, you know, maybe they were like, I think they, I always got the sense that they were a little more educated, a little more like. I don't know, like intellectual or something like they, they, I, I I never, you know, they didn't seem like kids. So we didn't really have any real connection with them. Our, our connection to Phoenix was JFA. They were um, Michael Cornelius, the original bass player was like the, their guy. And he was another guy that you just called and he helped book all the shows. And, and, you know, you, he, you'd always say, you know, can we, you know, are you guys going to be on the bill? Right. And we'd be like, yeah, of course we're on every bill. (laughs) Just (laughs) Just like seven seconds in Reno. But yeah, um, we played Mad. Uh, back then, they had a, a an old wrestling ring called Mad Gardens, and it was just a. It literally was a a, a wrestling place. They had uh, Saturday night wrestling shows that they filmed, and then when they do gigs, they would uh they had a, a a huge fence around the the ring itself, and the bands would actually play in the ring, and then the crowd would be on the other side. It was insane. It was like a it, like a music video from like the eighties, but kids would crawl up the fence and watch the bands, and uh, it was just a, one of the most unique venues ever. But we played we played there a few times. The first time we played there was the the Dead Kennedys invited us to come down and play. That would have been like eighty two, I think eighty one or eighty two. And uh, yeah, Phoenix, Phoenix was cool. Phoenix was a great place to play. It was kind of out of the way. I mean, unless you were going all the way to like you're going to Texas or something. Mm-hmm. But, but we were doing a lot of regional like West Coast runs. We did probably four of those before we even finally got the nerve to get out on, and go go across the country. Uh, and so we played Phoenix quite a bit. And early Vegas was great. Early Vegas had a really great scene. Um, all warehouse shows, just kids renting warehouses and and kind of doing the same thing we were doing in Reno, but just on a, they had, they, they were closer to LA. So more LA bands were playing there, you know, like uh social distortion and, and bad religion played there a lot more than they played in Reno for sure. Yeah. But yeah. I'm trying to think of local bands. Like there's that band vermin from Venus, but I think they would have been a little later. Like, do you remember any early Vegas bands that you would have played with? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, MIA, MIA came from out of that scene. They were oh, you know, yeah. orange County guys, but they, they were kind of the first kind of noted vegas hardcore band but um self-abuse are great um there there's documentation like it's it's a lot of it's on cassette mm-hmm. uh, i just found uh, um uh somebody had made a some some uh, one of the locals in a, in a band in vegas had made a great compilation called viva las vegas i i have it sitting on my desk and i have a, a copy and I, I actually uh digitized it and i shared a link on the bit there's a Le- vegas punk rock uh group on facebook and i said hey i don't know if anybody cares but i have this and everyone shit they were like oh my god i never thought i'd see that cassette again i had everything and it sounds good i i scanned the cover and but it's got self-abuse we're a great band um uh oh my gosh i'm blanking out self-abuse rzm were great they were i put a a little uh nevada seven inch um, a, a, a seven inch of Nevada bands. It was the first positive force record. Uh, your dink. I put out. Absolutely. Dink. There you go. They're on it. Um, Subterfuge were great. They, they had an English singer. They were really funny. They had a song called uh, 
uh, I'm in love with Jodie Foster. And yeah, that, there was a great music sound. The bands were, I, I mean, they really had a serious scene. Like we had a great scene, but it was very small. Like uh, the, the, the most, I mean, I think we had dead Kennedys and we had 500 kids showed up and that was the biggest we did. We, we, we never had that afterwards. Once seven seconds started to tour and, and get well known, we started to pull in numbers, but <clears throat> as far as like, um, from 80 to eight, like 85, they're really, we didn't have major shows where Vegas was doing these kids were doing shows in roller rinks and there'd be like 500, 600 kids. And, um, they had a great scene in the early eighties and, and, uh, it was pretty, pretty, a really always fun place to play. We always, we did, there was a, uh, a, a little, uh, storage unit called, they call it room 13. They just built a stage and graffitied it out. And that was a, you know, everybody played there. I think even GBH and the, uh, some of the other British bands came through UK subs and stuff. That's amazing. It just feels like it's, it's a city that is, I don't know, like, you know, once again, I'm not there. I'm right. very far away geographically, but like, it seems like it's a lot less documented than other places. Like I had no idea it had such a vibrant scene. Like obviously you're seen because of you guys, <laughs> but I guess it's like, you're saying there's almost like these champion bands from these cities that kind of carry the cities on their back when they're touring and and I, yeah. I can't really think of that who that band would have been from las vegas i i think you're right and i think <clears throat> pardon me i think vegas had a thing where there were a lot of uh, a lot of transplants a lot of people mm. from like southern california that moved there um it was very similar in the in, in, to reno in the sense that there just wasn't any uh, you know the the only thing vegas was known for was like sinatra and you know showgirls and that kind of stuff and and Reno was like even a, a a much more low rent version of that, you know. Like we didn't even we were lucky if we got Don Rickles or you know whatever uh, Engelbert Humperdinck or whatever. But um, they 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 were also the proximity to Southern California. It, it really helped them a lot, you know, because they they uh, once everyone f figured out that there was a place to play. Everybody was like, you know, okay, we're, we're there. And, and the, the, the kids were, uh, I'm, I'm, I've managed to really maintain a, a friendship with a lot of the people I knew back then. And they're, and they're all amazing people. You know, everybody's still involved, still a punk rock. And, you know, some of them are, you know, doctors or whatever, you know, but they're, they're still into it. And it, it, it was a cool scene. And, and the funny thing was, is that back in the day, there was this sort of like idea that there was a weird Vegas Reno, like beef because they were southern and we were northern and uh, i remember seven seconds came through and played and and um we came through and played had a, an amazing show the kid the kids could not have been nicer kid you know we got fed we had places to stay i actually fell in love i met a girl there and i fell in love and i had a relationship with a girl from vegas for like a couple years but it was amazing and then we uh, we we left uh, the next day we were on our way to go play with black flag in san luis obispo like we were going to drive all the way back into southern california uh we played the show on and then we I, I forgot what the deal was we a show in like la fell through um we got a call we, I, we, I called the the girl that i was starting this i i, lo I loved and i, I called, called her on a payphone and she said you guys want to come back and play a show and we're like, yeah, why not? So I, th I think the idea was we were going to come back and play with Agent Orange. And so we turned around, went, went to the desert, California desert, on the way. We broke down in Bar not Barstow, Bishop, California, middle of the summer. Um, we were there for hours. Um, Michelle, the girl that I knew, and her friends gathered together, got a truck, drove all the way to meet us in California, grab our gear. We had to leave our van there 
bring us back to Vegas, put us up in, in some girl's house. And we, who, and we stayed, we were literally like, we had no money. We had no <laughs> way to get out of Vegas. Um, I was stoked. Cause I had, you know, I'd met this girl and I, I, she was great. And we just fucked. We, we ended up playing. We just, screwing around like the girl yeah. they took us out to casinos we we ate you know at, at all the cheap places um i think we ended up getting two more shows like benefit shows like just to raise to help seven seconds to get back to reno so by the time we left we there was like this really nice connection between reno and vegas and it was like you know we felt i i felt great because it was like wow there you know this is the way it should be it, nevada's there's not much here we might as well link up you know so mm-hmm. Um, Vegas was the first town to sort of start their own. We had our uh, positive force group where, you know, we started it in Reno. Um, Vegas was the second place that kind of adopted. They had a, their own chapter and then it started to catch on in Chicago. And of course, DC, you know, blew it up and made it what it is today. But yeah, it, it was Vegas was a cool place. I mean, I still this I can't stand the city itself, but I, I you know, it was it, we've had some great shows. That's awesome. Yeah. No, like once again, like it's it's you know, they, these shows sound like they would have been, you know, I've got to see footage or got to see photos of these things. Cause right. <laughs> it, it just feels like, you know, there's so much stuff and, and like, there's so much stuff that is documented, but it tends to be, you know, a lot of the same things that get represented in the history, but there's all these other mm-hmm. places that, and all these other bands that are just, just as fascinating, but kind of just fell through the cracks. Yeah, I mean, and you know, got to remember that there was this, this period where is before kids started, you know, having video, you know, yeah. uh, video recorders and stuff. So it, it was so poorly documented that there were there were bands that had just amazing bands that everybody they were like a band's band. All bands that came through town were like, oh, you guys got to check out these guys, you know, and 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 they just didn't get documented because it just wasn't, you know, they 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 didn't have enough money. Maybe they had a demo that got passed around, you know. But um, yeah, it's crazy. And and you know, every once in a while, I'll go through. I still have a lot of cassettes. I I managed to hold on to a lot of cassettes, and I always go through and think, you know, what kind of little gold mine? Not 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 to sell, but just what kind of like little nugget do I have? That's just, you know, do I I forgot about? And and then I I I listen to, and I'm like, oh my god, they're you know, and it's just unfortunately, it's on bad again, cheap little cassettes that don't sound very good anymore, you know. Well, because your band tells the history of American underground music. Like there's, there's just certain bands, but like, you know, you start at the birth of, of like hardcore, but like whatever, when punk actually became like this thing yep. and, you know, like throughout your history, like that's that whole, like you're there for the Nirvana explosion, the Blink-182 explosion, like all that stuff. Like you see it, but you're also, because you're a legit hardcore band, you're also interacting with all these bands in all these different scenes. So I can only imagine yeah. the archive you've accumulated. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I I, I wish I had more of my old records. I I I made the mistake of leaving my. Uh, I had that trust thing going on where I'd go on tour and leave my, you know, leave my records in you know in my room, and then people would borrow them and then take them, and I'd come back and I'm like, wait, where are all my Discord early Discord things? You know, yeah. but uh, but yeah, fanzines and cassettes I managed to hold on to fanzine well, fanzines, flyers, and cassettes. I've got like I, I for some reason I've just got boxes and boxes of that stuff and i i go through it i've scanned a lot of stuff so you know i'm like well maybe i'll just scan it and then see if i can find somebody you know some you know museum underground museum that wants to collect this shit and i'll just give it to them or you know maybe somebody wants to you know but yeah it, it, it that's the stuff that i may i managed to hold on to you know 
probably the stuff that's worth the least, but still, it means a lot to me. <laughs> it's well, like, no, it's funny. We talk about this a lot on the show, and it's like people held on to records, you know, and and yeah. rarely people even held on to tapes, but like for the most part, tapes were thrown away, and flyers and zines are gone. Like that yeah. stuff is is irreplaceable. I agree. I agree. And I, I you know, the zines were such a uh, a, a, a pipeline, you know, the zine. I mean, you know, if you if if you if you didn't open up Maximum Rock and Roll and check the scene reports or or the the classified ads and Flipside or whatever, you know, that was such a huge thing. Mm -hmm. it, it 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 opened your world up to other people. You know, if you put a little ad for twenty dollars in Maximum Rock and Roll, you know, for your little demo, instantly people from all over, not just a you know, North, North America, but worldwide people were, were checking in, you know, and it, 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 it just, um, it, it, without zines, you know, I, 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 I don't, I often wonder if I'm just missing it. Like maybe there's a really thriving zine underground zine, zine scene that I just, I'm, I'm too old to know about, but it's like, I, I just feel like I don't, we wouldn't have been able to pull it off. I think without that, that side of things, you know, like, yeah, it was and so crucial. There is, and there definitely is a, a really huge. It's actually zines are now probably bigger than ever, but like That's serve great. a completely different function now. Like it's just a purely aesthetic thing. Whereas, yeah, like that, we're like, you know, the birth of the fanzine is that's the birth of social media. That's the birth of someone being absolutely. like, I have an idea. I'm going to share it with, with everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, man. And I mean, and you, and sometimes I'll go back through my old zines and I, I'm, I'll be blown away at how well, like what kind like some people were such great writers, you know, like there was back then it just seemed like maybe because I knew a lot of them and they were friends. I just was like, ah, you know, who cares if they give us a great review or a bad review, but you read through stuff and I'm like, that was really insightful. Like that was really, you know, like they, they really were trying to get to the core of what made a record great or why this show was so great. And, uh, I, I'm really happy about that because I, you know, I, I didn't notice I was too caught up in being just in my band and we were, we were really just touring all the time. And so I, 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 I didn't miss out on it, but I kind of felt like I just kind of took it, took, took it for granted that that was going on, you know? And yeah, yeah, yeah really, really amazing stuff when you think about it, you know, I, I feel lucky that I, that I, I'm from the era that I'm from and that I got to grow up in during that time, you know? I'm happy about that. Yeah. And it's that same sort of fanaticism that would have driven you to start that sex pistols fan club with your brother. Right? Like it's, the same <laughs> yeah, sort of, right. it's people like, I love this. I want to share my love of this music with as many people. I'm going to, I'm going to stay up late at night and scam Kinko's so yeah. I can do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody, everybody had their own little scam, their own little way of getting shit done, you know, and it, that's, that's what, that's how it, that's how it goes. <laughs> Well, I have kept you. I told you there was going to be a, a long one. Uh, That's great. It's been great. I could do, you know, it, it's it's fun. It's been great talking with you. And I, I, I don't get to do this a lot because I, I, part of me is I, you know, I've said to other people in, in discussions, I'm like, you know, I, I, I always kind of fight to not be the old guy that sits around telling the old tales. Oh, you know, we used to do this. and But it's nice when it's sort of put in a, um, you know, in in context, and it's it's nice when it. I don't know. It's it's always great to talk to somebody who just loves and is passionate about music, and especially with punk rock and hardcore. Someone as you you know, like you, and I, 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 I'm glad. I'm glad it's happened. I'm glad the podcast. I mean, the podcast is great, and I'm I'm glad it's doing well. And yeah, you, I'm I'm stoked. Oh, that means a lot because I think you know, and and this is 
you know, like growing up, and I think it's like this for anyone, like when you get into punk, there's always that older generation that's telling you you miss the best thing ever. Yeah. You know, or the band that you like. Oh, that band sucks. They're actually secretly scumbags. And, yeah. and honestly, you are the dude that everyone was like, Kevin rules, seven second <laughs> rules. Like, and there was no shit talk it was just like and it, and it was such a positive thing and you continue to be that you know and it's just think, yeah it, it's just it's it's really important that you are that person like i've had so many amazing conversations about seven seconds music with just random people you know like and it's amazing how different decisions you make as a band at all different points of your career mm -hmm. shift hardcore like you know like you 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 just like i <laughs> i had this very heated debate with the dudes in dinosaur jr one time um about committed for life because they're like no no not committed for life no i've heard that lou barlow really does any i i i there was a thing going around a while back where there was a uh this teach this guy that does t-shirts uh he does them for all these different bands and and he did a lou barlow and it was a takeoff on the committed for life thing and i i thought it was funny so like i had 20 people send me the link to it and i was like oh, okay and and then and then i read what lou said and and everybody was like that's fucked up man i was like no you know i get it i i understand where he's coming from i i, I got no beef i'm still gonna be a fucking i'm a huge subado fan i love dinosaur jr but yeah it's I, that was funny i something came up recently about that and i i i didn't but, know <laughs> but that's kind of awesome too because you know committed for life is where i where that that record changed my life you know it's like wow. it's like you still impact like even your pivots like it's like these people get off the train but then there's like a whole group of new kids that yeah you inspire to get on the train with the next move and it's like you know and, and you're the band that does that like there's a bunch of times in your career where people are like oh they change it's no longer what i'm about but yet that ends up inspiring that change ends up inspiring a whole new wave in its wake it, it seems i think you're right and, and and we never really noticed so much i think we were just you know our thing was like oh well let's just do what the fuck we want and you know i mean obviously you know our initially when we did made musical did tried something different it, we got our hurt our feelings hurt because at the at the point of doing like the new wind album we got a lot of flack from the hardcore scene mm -hmm. but what's funny is is that you know like you said it, there was this whole shift in this whole sort of new group of folks that, that that started embracing us who didn't you know they didn't care for skins brains and guts so much or committed for life and they they they, they started to like crew a little bit but now that you know there's more melody with you know and and then and, and over the years you know it's it's the it's the funniest thing ever it's almost this weird i i i've talked i've said this a million times but i'll i'll have somebody it's always like a one of the like the, the the got dude from new york the new york hardcore scene who's got the craziest reputation and toughest reputation who will come up to me and go kev i gotta tell you man soul force revelation one of my favorite records like the the, <laughs> the wimpiest record we've ever done I, yeah. I i like i can almost count on it now it's the funniest yeah. thing and i'm like i i always just it blows my mind i'm like i would have never thought that that was a record you would like you know like so there's always those kind of little fun surprises and you know i i honestly i love it all i mean it like i said when we when we first started getting any flack it was kind of tough because we were young and 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 insecure and and you know sensitive but i i think we were just having so much fun just just trying to figure out how to be a band and how to stay how to stay a band 
and we would just we loved the fact that we had we were we 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 had access to this community that we just adored and and to people that we just respect loved and and still do to this day a lot of it and we were getting to see parts of the world that we you know we there we should have never had a chance to do that from at least my brother and I's background, we know we we just didn't ever think we were going to get to do that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I I I feel like, um, you know, we hit the lot. I mean, I I feel stoked about it. And 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 uh, I was I just did an interview yesterday, and and somebody was saying like, you know, I I you guys were always so underrated and da da da. And I was like, you know, I I I I never think about that kind of stuff until like I'll have somebody who's just a good friend who loves the band will say that, and then I'll go. Uh, maybe maybe did we get shortchanged i i feel like we did everything we ever wanted to do and more you know like mm-hmm. i i never felt like we didn't get to go out and do the shit we want to do i don't feel like people ignored us i don't feel like we and we got to make a living doing it for a long time and like i don't know i can't i don't think that i just don't see any bad in it i, I you know i think it's yep. been a really ble- great great history you know great time the whole we- you know well, that, almost 40 years and that's an archetype right there that you're also establishing the idea of like you do this music, you love the music you make, it's going to change, it's going to evolve, and it's going to shift organically. And yeah. to to try and not change, that's disingenuous to me. And so I feel like my band, and I'm not, I'm not alone in this, but like tons of bands that have sort of an extended run, like are, yeah. are also very much in, in the same way following your footsteps where you're going to get that backlash from people, but there's going to be new kids that are going to like what you do. And yeah, that's why I think, you know, that's why seven seconds out of all the, you know, influential, you know, canon of hardcore bands to me is one of the most important because what always seems to remain the same is being a good person and trying to do good by the people that like your music, like not committed to the sonic of punk, committed to the ideal of punk. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think that's it. Like I like even even when people are going, oh, it's just like you two, you know, reimagine. I was like, well, maybe the sound is that I get, you know, we're definitely an influenced band, but we're still traveling the way we do. We still, you know, go out there and and give it everything every night. We're still staying at people's house. You know, like we're doing we're still living the life that we we, we kind of came into and, and we, we always embraced. And that never changed. Even the last year or two of our of our existence it was like you know we i remember just going you know no matter i mean we'll always just do the gig i mean even if we weren't making we, we started to get paid really pretty decently to the last few years you know there was like a kind of a the people were going hey you know you guys have some value and i'm like well that's great but we would have done we would do the gig anyway you know like it, yeah. it, it just it's just something that we always wanted to do and it was always kind of a, a little dream and and to be able to do it in, in of course, you know, all over America, Canada, go to, I mean, we, you know, going to Moscow and going to South, you know, South America and just doing Japan, you know, like that, that to me was just like, there were a time in my life where I never even, you know, imagined that that was possible. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's just been great. And, and, you know, it, I, 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 I kind of concerned myself a little bit when I knew that the, the thing with, when the trust label was going to, I knew that they were going to take on this, uh, the crew and reissue and stuff. And I, I thought, God, you know, this is a record that I, I, I felt like we, we did so much to promote and we toured on it and we went really went out there and I'm like, we don't, I can't go, we can't tour as a band now cause we're not a band, but am I, what's it going to be like to, to even kind of revisit like, Oh, you know, like, and it's been really great because it's been sort of like it, it's given me this opportunity to kind of reflect a little bit after having some distance and, 
and almost re reappreciate what we not only what we got to experience, but just to 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 listen and see how other people saw the band or how what what the band has meant to them, you know. And it's it's been fun. It's it's really been cool, you know. Like I got no complaints. I mean, I have a few, but not about the band. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, anytime, anytime, Kevin. You want to come back here and suffer through another round of this? Please know. Oh, please! <laughs> always open. Um, Thank but you. Can I punt? Because I, I have once again, I have a, a notebook full of questions for you. But uh, are there are a couple more that uh, that I would die to ask you. Can I ask you a couple more before you go? Of course, I'm not. Yeah, dude, I'm I'm cool. I'm at my studio and I'm gonna be here. I'm finishing a painting, so I'm I got nowhere to go. I'm gonna be here all night. So. Oh well, then God help you now, my friend. Um, <laughs> Uh, one thing I've always wanted to know, and I'm jumping way ahead uh, here, but like, how did that four bands that could change the world compilation come together? Because it's like geographically, you guys are from all over the U.S., and it just doesn't seem like there's any sort of direct link. So I was just wondering, was that just like the label that put you guys together, or that was? Um, so I, I I struck up a friendship with Bill Bartell from the band White Flag. Um, I I forget. Pat Fear. No, wait, Pat, not Pat Fear. Pat yeah, Fear. Pat Fear. Yeah, Pat Fear. Yeah. Um, and initially he was one of the most annoying people I'd ever met. And I <laughs> I, I I mean, I, you know, I I he knows that he knew that. I mean, we we had discussions about it. But he uh he got my number when I was living in Reno and he would call me. And uh at first I just thought he was just like a weird guy, you know, weirdo or whatever. I I could never quite I didn't know how how connected he was to so many great the the scene in in Hollywood and LA or whatever, and then and I knew about White Flag, but I was not a huge fan or anything. I got you know, so I I it was, it, at first it was just a weird kind of obnoxious thing, but then we 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 struck up that we he he called me and I would I loved talking to him. He was so in, interesting, and I've never been a big phone guy. Like I just never was good at in, you know unless it's my wife or you know my my mom or whatever. But he was so interesting because he was just a walking rock music encyclopedia and he just had so much love for like punk rock and music in general but rock you know rock and roll and um he approached me about doing uh, a white flag record on my label positive force and i had heard some song he'd sent me a tape that i loved it was just really great stuff and i said i'll you know i'd love to do a seven inch why not so i i ended up doing i think i did a i think it was a seven inch that they had pressed at some point but it was out of print and we did something together. Anyway, it was it, we we struck up a kind of a friendship through. Um, he had his label Gasatanka, and I had Positive Force, and um, we just kind of struck up this friendship. And 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 he he said he was working on a compilation, and he said, "Hey, you want to do like a, you know, it'll be like uh, I the guys in uh, uh, Adrenaline OD are interested, and what was the other band? There was a fourth band." F. Um, F, thank you. Yeah, from, from Florida. Florida? Yeah. yeah, I, I, and I still, I didn't know much about them at all. And he said, it'll kind of just be like Adrenaline D had their label, uh, buy our records, and he said it'll be like we'll just take the the, the labels and we'll make it like a, a a collective thing. And I was like, sure, why not? And um, so he wanted everybody to to contribute. Uh, I think five songs initially. Or he wanted asked if we do five songs, and I was like, "All right, well, we I, we had had a couple songs that we'd recorded uh, with Ian McKay in DC that hadn't been put on on our record, and and I had a live version, I think, of two songs, mm -hmm. just five. one day, and walk together, rock together on there. Yes, and then uh, <laughs> we we needed a, a I I I we needed a, a fifth song, and I said, "Well, 
we don't really have anything. I've got more live stuff. And then I, I just, I don't know, you know what I was thinking. I had a little bullshit studio in the basement as it's where the positive force office. I, I, it was a house. It was a band house. I took over the basement. We, the band practiced there. And then I ran the record label out of there. And, um, one night it was me, Troy, the drummer, Bobby, our guitar player, Steve, my brother wasn't even there yet. And we just started to jam around on this just dumb. We were making fun of shit, like new yeah. wave stuff and whatever. And I just recorded it. And we literally made up this dumb song called Dance of Innocence. And I still, I, I it's so funny. I still get, Kev, did you guys ever do Dance of Innocence? And I'm like, think about the title. Like, if you you really don't know how fucking dumb and wacky we we can be, if you think that that song was a real song. But so I, as a joke, I sent that to Bill and, and he fucking loved it. He was like, yeah, fuck, let's put this on there. And I'm like, if you want to put it on there. But then I, you know, I, I felt bad because Steve wasn't on it. And, and I, and I, I, you know, I knew heat, my brothers, you know, depending on what Moody's and I was like, I don't want him to get pissed about it. So I said, well, we needed another song is that we just did the song and we can't record it really. We don't have any time. And he's like, I don't care. So yeah, so that, but yeah, that was it. I mean, it was just a, it was mostly Bill Bartel's idea and he just, um, you know, I liked him and, and, and we just, you know, I think we were just looking for excuses to do something together, you know? And so mm -hmm. that's what, that's what happened. And, Somebody just, I think somebody just told me that they had a copy of that for me that they bought and they, they found or something. And they said, if you want it, it's yours. And I, I said, I, I have a cassette copy of it, but I don't have the vinyl of that. And I, and I said, I'll take it if you, if you don't, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's, I, mean, I assume it's out of print, been out of print forever, but. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. There's no yeah. way. Well, I, I don't think LSR Records has been putting out records for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. They, well, they, <laughs> we've got a little history. Dutch East India, you know, they, we, we, we had a little falling out with them. They, I had a, a deal with them for a little while and they, they, owe, they still owe us quite a bit of money, but Hey, hey come on, 2021, we'll move. We're moving forward here. And <laughs> well, that, that, you know, you're not the first person to sing that song on this I podcast. I, I like, I would love to see a documentary about that label because like you kind of scrape through who they put out and it's like, it's crazy. Ev everyone. Yeah, they were the artery. I mean, they they were giving, they were just reaching out to people who had like these, just these fledging labels with no money, and they'd say, "Look, you know, we'll do a P and D deal with you. We'll put up the and and of course, me being a desperate poor kid, I was just like, "All right, I'll do it if it means that I get to get put out great records." Which I, initially it was great. It was a great setup, and I didn't have to do as much. You know, I was I was trying to balance being on tour, but also like running this little record without really knowing what I was doing, and. uh the whole time, and and he loves to remind me of this every time we talk. Ian McKay was saying, "Don't do it." He goes, "Just figure, <laughs> don't do it." He goes, "Figure out a way to just get the money together. I'll, I'll help you with. Yeah, I'll put you in touch with so and so, and and I, just don't don't take the easy way." And I'd be like, "All right," and then I'd take the easy way, and of course regret it. But every chance he gets, he's like, "Remember, remember, I told you." And I was like, "Yes, yes, yes, I remember." <laughs> See, we all, everyone in punk has the uh, the figurative Ian Mackay on their shoulder. You have the literal Ian Mackay over your shoulder telling you I, I, about it, these things. It's it's one of the it's it's like this it's this this thing that I, I love him to death. He's I, he's one of the greatest human beings in the world, and 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 he's one of the few people. I I mean I listen to a lot of people, but when Ian will say something, it's always very thoughtful, and it's not just like he doesn't that I know of. As long as I've known him, he's never just said anything. Just that, like at the time, you know, he's in a good mood, and he just had happened to say that that day. He he's very thoughtful about what he says, and he's very like. 
he's so fucking wise. And so anytime, especially record label stuff has come up, I, I always listen. Not that I always took his advice, but um, yeah. And, and I've always really valued that with him because, uh, you know, I, I, A, I've, always, I've been a fan of everything he's ever done, but also at an early stage, I realized what a great human he is. And he was, you know, we became friends through writing letters and postcards and phone calls and stuff. And it's just, you know, it's, it, he really is one of those guys that if, if he, in, if he in speaks, listen, just listen to him and don't, don't, don't take it lightly. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> and I guess finally, uh, one band that I've only ever heard one song of because that's the only song that's available. But the song is so killer that I just wanted to find out a bit, a little bit more about them. Is Bix Bigler Band? <laughs> wow, that's amazing. That's that's amazing that you'd even mentioned that because. <laughs> So what's the you, you so what's the story like what I, I just love that one song I think it's scientific names for your penis is this, or dick there's a scientific, na name, for a scientific name for your dick yeah yeah that's it and that song is I, amazing like that is a, a killer punk song and uh, <laughs> I, I know there's a tape with like like maybe four or five other songs that has a cover so it must have been you guys must have put it out legit right we didn't put it out. So Bix was the the second drummer, seven seconds for a real short period, like uh, on the Skin Sprains Gusto record he played. Uh, and then he put out, he started his label, uh, Squirt Down. Oh, that was his I, label. Yep. Yeah. Oh. He started that. He, he, he was a working guy. He worked at the airport and he had some money and he said, uh, we had we, 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 we weren't sure what we were going to do. We were going to try to do our own record after the Skin Sprains Gusto record. And um, he said, well, what do you guys, do you have money to do it? And I said, well, not really, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, I'm, I want to start my label. And I, I, and I was thinking it'd be cool to have you guys, you know, be one of the early records. So, so I think he put out, I want to say the Bix Bigler band was the first, was it might, the, it might've been the first one he did. I think before. it's the first thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was such a, um, he was from a Reno band called the Thrusting Squirters. They were like a, a real, they were kind of like their big, influence was like the dictators it was like that rock you know rock and punk stuff like yeah. they love the dictators and again mc5 and iggy and that kind of stuff but they were kind of always it was like wacky their lyrics were just ridiculous like i don't have you heard that amtrak tape at all that first tape at all i've only heard that one song that's the only song i can find but i got <laughs> the, the, the titles look ridiculous it's really offensive like it, there uh there, there's uh the song amtrak is it's about like a gangbang thing. And it's, it was kind of about a specific woman that was part of the Reno scene at the time. And back then, because we were all idiots and ignorant, we thought, Oh, that's hilarious. You know, da, da, da. but uh, recently it's really funny. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to think of who approached me about this. They said, they said, Hey, we want to do this thing on seven seconds, but I, I, I'm, I'm, are you concerned at all about your connection? You're listed as being like a background vocalist on the Bix Bigler thing. And I was like, uh, I kind of forgot that I no, I know I played a guitar is what I did. I played mm. guitar in a song. Um, I said, yeah, I, honestly, I don't. I mean, I, I assume that everybody knows that. Like we, we didn't write the songs. Bix, Bix was just kind of a. He was like this. I don't. I assume he's still around, but he was just like this. This kind of dude from Utah, and he was a almost like a. Um, just, just I don't know. They 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 were like these guys that embraced punk, but they kind of came from a whole different world. And they were they they drank and they partied, and it was a whole, it was kind of a different scene than 
what I mean, we all became one big scene. But yeah, he was kind of one of those guys that just I think he liked to just t- talk shit and get a, a rise out of people. And he was one of the nicest guys in the world. You met him and he's like this real almost nerdy guy. But when he released the tape, everybody was like, oh, my God, like he's talking about his dick. You know, like <laughs> a, I, the, he had a song called Don't Vomit on Me and just, just, just get off the dill. Yeah, one. get off the deal, get on this dick. It was all just like it was like mentors, yeah, shit almost. Yeah, yeah. and I never, you know, I, I I always thought it was corny and just really dumb, like just like dumb shocking shit. Uh, the Squirters, the Thrusting Squirters, were a great band. That's a band that I I really wish had I I recorded them and I I have a cassette of theirs. It's really great. I think it's called Memorized Mistakes. Um, I, I may have put that out on, on Vicious Scam, actually, now that I think about it. but I think it's listed as coming out on Squirt Down. I was going to actually ask you he about mi- that tape. He might have actually released it eventually. I can't remember. I, I, I know I recorded them, mm. and I just found – no, I'm sorry. My sister just mailed me from New York um, the cassette. She has, like, a crazy collection that, she's, that I – I, I want, but I, I can't, I, she won't give me, give it to me, but yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it was on squirt down, but it was, they were, they had some great songs. Sean Greaves. That was a guitar. He was a guitar player and the singer ended up being, and he played in that band, the lewd for a while uh, yeah, from San Francisco. Yeah. And then he went down and he moved to Southern California and got involved with like Chuck biscuits. And, and um, they had a band called, uh, Oh my gosh, they had a seven inch out and it was, it was really cool stuff. Kind of like garage rock, real garagey rock stuff but it yeah he, he he's done some stuff i think he kind of got into production for a while and and might have done some like crew work for social distortion or something i can't remember but yeah bix is i haven't talked to him in a while i i, I don't know what bix is up to i i often I, i've looked him up on like facebook and i haven't found him or anything but um yeah that that cassette is just it was really very contra- controversial at the time i think it was like everybody was like Okay. Well, the, you know, the the he put out the Jack Shit seven inch yeah, too. Yeah, Jack Shit too. Yeah. Right, and that was another thing too, where you know they Jack Shit were just an amazing band, but the lyrics were just so fucking stupid. You know, like that they just just I mean they were kind of they, they did it with a sense of humor, and there was some there were Dave the singer was really smart, really smart guy, but they were kind of trying to be like they were they were trying to be the opposite of what seven seconds was which was like leftist sort of perceived straight edge they decided to go in in more of a right wing we're a bunch of drunks and we party and Mm. their big coup is that they they dave begged me to sing backing vocals on the they have a song called we still like drugs and he said please (laughs) you have to sing you have to sing and i'm like dude what why you know he's like just it would just be so funny so i finally did and so i'm listed on the on the record as doing backing vocals on i still like drugs and that was one of dave's major coups i think he he thought he he pulled a fast one on me or something he was gonna ruin my straight edge you know my uh my reputation or whatever but they were actually an amazing band uh steve youth played with them and they were great really super great band um they came from utah as well they were in a band from utah called the atheists that were really good and i think they had they they were on a compilation or two i think we got power they were on that compilation oh yeah yeah Uh, or maybe they hold on maybe now that i think about it i think they're listed on it but it's a seven second song i think we have two songs on uh party or go home uh accidentally like there's a version of definite choice and i think wasted life ain't no crime and i think the waste uh definite choice was supposed to be uh the atheists uh part of the compilation and then somehow it was like we may have submitted the tape together or something is what happened i don't remember what it was but it's some fuck up yeah that's a fuck up 
when you go through Doug Moody, you go through Mystic Records. That's another, especially the compilations. That's uh, another label that put out like every, like so many bands came through there. Yeah, yeah. There's so many stories about that whole situation. He he tried so hard to get us to do stuff, and I we were on a couple compilations, but we never got, we never did. We we just had too many friends pulling us back, saying, "Don't do it, <laughs> don't just don't do it." <laughs> well, I am very glad that you did this, and Kevin, anytime you want to come back on, as I said, please. I love it. Don't even have to ask. Just show up. <laughs> well, I love it. I'd love to. And anytime, you know, if you, if you, uh, you run out of a guest and you need somebody, I'm, I'm, you know, but yeah, thank you, man. I honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of what you do musically and your podcast. And, uh, my wife, she uh, owns a gym and, uh, is she fucked up as a, uh, you might not believe this, but fucked up is apparently is a great, uh, band <laughs> to work out to. She, you guys' music, she, she plays a lot. And, um, I had the, uh, fucking, um, Oh, I, I'm so bad. The, the, the David comes to life. I had yeah. that on a CD, and I played it for a whole tour. I just, I just listened to that CD, and she borrowed it, and I've never gotten it back. And I, I just, I don't know where it, where it ended up, but she loves it so much. But, but thank you. <laughs> thank you, Kevin, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, we barely scratched uh, the surface on this stuff. There's so much more. To get into with Kevin, there could be, well, we could do, turn this into a whole podcast series, just me interviewing Kevin Seconds. I would not be mad at that if that's what happened to this podcast, because that was a thrill. That is a thrill. Pick up that crew reissue on Trust Records, and also head over to that GoFundMe and donate if you can uh, in memory of Ginger Moet uh, as well. Uh, coming up later on this week on the show the composer of some of the most well-known songs of all time. From the band Oingo Boingo, Danny Elfman will be here on the show. And this is a doozy. This is a really amazing, <laughs> amazing conversation I got to have with someone who, I say it to him, he's like one of the most influential musicians of all time. Like, his songs, I can hum a, a few bars to just about anyone and they'll recognize exactly what I'm singing out of the gate from peewee to the simpsons to edward scissorhands to they're, just, they're honestly we could spend the entire next hour just me running off his credits anyway this is a fun one you'll hear it very soon in a few short days remember as always black lives matter the lives of indigenous people matter we need to protect trans kids we need to help trans people protect themselves and we need to stop hate and violence towards um asian people and we just basically need to smash fascism and stop Nazis. These aren't political issues. These are human rights issues. Go out, get informed, donate money to organizations. Just, 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 I don't know. We're just trying to, we all just want to live our lives and, and just do so in peace. So yeah, fuck fascism is basically what it comes down to. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. They're just, there's just more to deal with. So let them take them away, you know, let, take, take the physical burden off you, uh, do something creative. You know, it doesn't have to be something you put out in the world. It doesn't have to be a band. It doesn't have to be a fanzine. It could, it could be a band or a fanzine. It could be a podcast. This shit's easy. Uh, but it could just be drawing a picture. You know, you don't have to share it with anyone. Just maybe it'll help your own kind of mental health. Speaking of helping your own mental health, maybe try meditating. I didn't believe in it. And then I tried it and it worked for me. And so maybe it'll work for you. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. 
Uh, and um, I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. Uh, stay safe. Uh, you know, and uh, I'll see you next episode. I love you. Thanks for listening. Bye.